yes, now you Yeah, you there are. we go. Yes. Yeah, okay. There my, we go. Uh, uh, my uh, Yeti mic was muted. Uh, somehow. I don't so know those how. Those silent Yetis, those are the yeah. ones that get you. <laughs> to be fair, they probably are uh, pretty quiet. Uh, yeah, they get they got to hunt fucking penguins or whatever it is. The, the, the Yeti. Not, not what Yeti's Yeti hunts. is a Tibetan word. Yeah, they yeah <laughs> they live in the Himalayas. <laughs> is are there many? I don't know. There might be penguins in the Himalayas. I don't no, know. I don't, well, it's no, they're likely. not. What's the alternative? There are no goats. Pen- yes, they eat goats. Obviously. Duh. Okay. What What about man? Do they eat man? Yes, rich people climbing uh, the Himalayas because they're assholes. Got it. Got it. Okay, so uh, welcome back after some technical difficulties. Welcome back Good. to Yeti Talk. <laughs> we have prob- ah, we Yeti prob- Talk! <laughs> Yeti Talk! Oh, man. That's a callback. Whoa! <laughs> we'll have to... It's, unfortunately, we will probably then have to toss out uh, the stuff earlier, because probably Dude's mic was... I edited Patrick out of an entire yeah. podcast. I can edit Dude out of 20 minutes of one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can edit... So, we're talking about Spider-Man 3. Uh, the, uh, Jesus Christ. Oh, this is falling apart. <laughs> the 2006 hit oh, film. Oh, 2007. Uh, 2006 or 2007? 2007. Yeah. 2007. That late, really? Yeah. God. Spider-Man 3. Yep, 2007. Uh, I didn't do my research. No, you didn't. Uh, hit film, the <clears> third <throat> in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man series. Uh, starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, J.K. Simmons, and newcomers Thomas Hayden Church and Topher Grace. Yes. <laughs> the Toph. Um, Noted yeah, Star know. Wars re-editor Topher Grace. Yep. Um, okay, so this film, I, I think this is going to be an interesting conversation for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one... Uh, this is the film that is now looked back on as having more or less delivered the crippling blow to the Spider-Man franchise in 2007, despite being the biggest moneymaker of the franchise. Mm. It is spoken of in the same breath as Batman and Robin, although not the way we speak of Batman and Robin. No, I think we should talk about this Uh, movie the way we talk about Batman and Robin. Yes. Um, The second reason this is going to be interesting is... uh, Nick and Dooge have a long-standing debate about the quality of this film and their perceptions of it uh, that I would love to explore in some detail here. You, you might be disappointed, actually. Yeah. Have you finally come around? Uh, I will say that I liked it a lot more this time. All right. Yes. I liked it a little less. So- Maybe we found the happy medium. <laughs> yeah everything's turned around so now dude love it loves it nick thinks it sucks no i i did not uh, say that i do not think it sucks i think it's i think it's got right, issues so I'm, I'm going to i'm going to venture uh, a summary here and please chime in and correct me if i miss any crucial details all right okay there's a lot going on in this movie there's yes, a lot there yes is. yeah that Yes. Okay, I'll do my best. Uh, we begin with our hero from the previous two films, uh, Spider-Man, played by Tobey Maguire. Famous for Fear and Loathing and, uh, in Las Vegas. <laughs> yes, and the Ice Storm. <laughs> um, and Sea Biscuit. Uh, he played Sea Biscuit. Yes. 
I don't think that's true. A good German. No, he actually he played the front um, half of Seabiscuit. Okay. Uh, the yeah, yeah. stunt guy in the back half. <laughs> Paul Giamatti was in the back. <laughs> he is a horse's that's, ass. Yeah, if, if you go into IMDb, Paul Giamatti is credited as horse's ass. <laughs> uh, uh, so Toby Maguire, Peter Parker. Is uh, he's our hero, and th- things are kind of looking up for Peter Parker. He's uh, he's got the girl, as we saw at the end of the last film. He is a beloved local hero. Even that Daily Bugle can't seem to find anything bad to say about Spider-Man, uh, despite the fact that its editor's uh, reason for being is to say bad things about Spider-Man. So uh, things seem to be going well for Peter. Uh, he's thinking about proposing to Mary Jane. And, Played by Kirsten uh, Dunst he... of uh, uh, The Crow Salvation fame. <laughs> <laughs> um but then things go wrong. Uh, so we've got a couple of plot threads from previous films to pick up on. Uh, number one, Harry Osborn, played by James Franco, of... Uh, the Sound and the Spring Fury. Breakers. Performance art fame? Um, from the best Oscars, Oscars ever. <laughs> from his <laughs> Yale- NYU graduate program in film yeah. studies. From his Yale degree in poetry fame. Um... James Franco. Uh, Modern uh, Renaissance man. (laughs) Fool's gold. I like that one. Uh, Playing Harry Osborn, uh, the son of Normus. It's not the Fool's Fool's Gold with uh, Matthew McConaughey. I was just reading off his IMDb list. Uh, That would have been like an ab off between the two of them. Um, No, so James Franco playing Harry Osborn, the son of Norman Osborn, who was played memorably by Willem Dafoe. uh, Of the Last Temptation of Christ fame. Yeah, the last temptation of Christ. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Happy Easter. We will talk more about yeah. Jesus later. Don't you worry. <laughs> yep. Uh, Harry has decided, because he still believes that Peter killed his father, Harry has decided that he's going to become a goblin, just like his father. Uh, but he does it in less of a Halloween nightmare way and more of an X Games way. Um, a fight ensues. Harry. Uh, gets knocked on the head uh, when Peter clotheslines him with a web that should have taken his head clean off his shoulders. And gives us the best sound uh, effect in the movie. Thwonk! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so ha- Harry develops an extremely convenient amnesia. Yep. Uh, it's uh, it's Schrodinger's amnesia. It's convenient. Or Chekhov's amnesia. It's convenient for everyone, though, because it makes his life a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I will say, if anything's Chekhov's in this one, it's Chekhov's sound waves. Because there's, there's yeah, talk yes. early on yeah, sound waves, and I remember legit. thinking to myself, yes. I wonder if that's going to come back later. And it did. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Flint Marco, played by uh, THC himself, has yes. escaped from prison, uh, where he was apparently being held on a murder charge. If that didn't make sense, then uh, THC is what we're calling Thomas Hayden Church, famous for his role... Uh, in Idiocracy, as the CEO of Brondo. Ah. Dude, dude, um, everybody know who's, who THC is. You don't need to explain who THC is. Obviously, everybody knows. My mistake. Uh, so THC has a sick daughter. Um, <laughs> At first, I thought you meant, like, in the positive way. Like, she's totally sick. Yeah. That daughter is sick. <laughs> My daughter, no, wicked uh, smack. 
<laughs> no, she she's sick and he has uh she's got an unrecognizable movie. She's got McGregor's syndrome. He has McGregor's syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> but only stage two. There there's treatment possibilities. Yep. Yes. Uh so the cops are trying to chase him down and they chase him into an extremely negligent uh, nuclear particle testing facility. Yeah, I don't where he is I, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I thought that theoretical physics experiments were usually conducted like inside of any room. <laughs> Yeah. Nope. Nope. They're just as opposed to a pit. Unless it's a nuclear explosion, then you probably have a ceiling. Nope. Now I, they just shoot. I would say first of all the they shoot electricity at sand. Purpose. Yeah, the purpose of this experiment is extremely questionable at best. This is probably a poor use of a research grant. Um, or, Thomas Aiden Church gets trapped into a pit of sand and is basically like uh, blended into the sand. Yeah. Uh, like. Someone was trying to make a sand and church souffle. Um, blended into the sand, and he gains, gasp, sand powers. He rises from the sand. Yes. Much uh, like Jesus. Meanwhile, yep. <laughs> meanwhile, Peter is competing for a job at the Daily Bugle, a full-time staff photographer job with Edward Brock Jr., uh, played by Topher Grace, uh, who is... Peter's dark shadow, and by dark shadow we mean he has blonde hair instead of brown, and is slightly more confident of an asshole. Yeah, and he's um, dating Gwen Stacy. Well, they had one coffee, Nick. Well, when he introduces um, himself, he, he pretends to be his boyfriend. Her boyfriend. I mean, That's most true. most people uh, in this movie have uh, severe. Uh, disillusions about Brain themselves. Uh, their their self image yep. is totally skewed. <laughs> damage, yeah. So it makes sense that uh, he would yeah uh, have delusions of grandeur when it comes to their relationship. So Peter and Mary Jane are spending a romantic night in a giant web in the park uh, when a small meteor crashes unnoticed nearby a and meteor. a black goo- <laughs> yep and a black gooey alien squirms out of it and hitches a ride on peter's bike now pay attention this will come back in about an hour well actually <laughs> um, the way that you've told it you've situated it much closer to when it's relevant because that scene you just described is literally 10 minutes into the movie and everything else that you've been true. describing is about another half hour of the movie that's true i'm describing the very long first act of the film yes um Peter's relationship with Mary Jane starts to fall apart because uh, she is failing in her Broadway career and he is blind to her struggles and her needs. He is obsessed with his own sudden celebrity. He's an Um, asshole. He's an asshole. Uh, At the same time, uh, Peter finds out that apparently the police department had made a mistake that they're just now getting around to telling him that uh, Dennis Carradine... Uh, who Peter thought had killed his Uncle Ben, was in fact not Uncle Ben's killer. Uncle Ben's killer is, conveniently enough, this Flint Marco fellow that we've just met. THC did uh, it. So now, yep, THC did it. So now Peter's, uh, he, he's very angry, his personal um, life's falling apart. That doesn't apart. happen until, like, the end of, like, the second act, I think, that he learns that. Uh, that's, like, way down the line. It happens about an hour into the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's when, yeah, no, it's, no, no. it's I, right I'm, after I'm, Mary Jane breaks up with him. Um, we can yeah, we okay. can discuss the plotting okay. problems in this <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, the, yeah. The sh- there are significant structural issues in this film, and I'm trying to structure yeah, my recap in a way that makes sense to okay. me. In, in, in <laughs> I, I right, like yeah. the, the structure. He's flitting around, but he's flitting around. All right, go ahead. Um, 
I- anyway, so everything's falling apart for Peter. He's consumed by rage. He's angry. He's trying to get revenge. And this uh, alien goo decides that this is its opportunity to strike. So it crawls all over Peter while he is sleeping in his entire Spider-Man costume, but no mask. Um, crawls all over him and gives him a new black costume that makes him stronger and faster, but also a total dick. Um, I mean, he's very yeah. self-centered, but... Uh, yeah. Yes. But now he's aggressive. Yes. Because this alien costume, which has the characteristics oh. of a symbiote, as Dr. Connors <laughs> helpfully uh, tells us, uh, is amplifying his aggression. So now, uh, Harry decides to remember that he was the goblin when he looks at a picture of his father. <laughs> he doesn't just decide. It's right <laughs> after his perceived rejection from Mary Jane. So it's, it's the moment that he, he feels uh, like he doesn't have a network anymore or he feels pushed out of his network. Yeah. So he, he dis- remembers that he was the goblin and then decides to go all Iago uh, to break up Peter and Mary Jane even further which seems a little unnecessary considering the relationship had already fallen apart, but he, he pushes it once more over the edge and then enjoys a cappuccino and some pie. Yes. So um, good. So mm-hmm. good. Tastes like strawberries. Yep. So Peter at this point is, uh, he, he's lost his mind. He, he fights the Sandman uh, and drowns him, but it's okay because he's made of sand. Yeah. But he thinks he kills um, him. He believes yeah. he's murdered yeah, this thinks man. Yeah, he thinks he killed but him. But you can't kill what and... will rise again three days later. Like, Jesus. Yep. So, what, is, what is dead can never die, but rises again stronger. Yes. So what, uh, what, what does he do to celebrate this? He goes out on the town with uh, his lab partner, Gwen Stacy, after strutting around and dressing all in black, goes to the jazz club that his... Uh, that Mary Jane now works at and sings yes. at and engages in a snazzy dance number. He also he also does it in front of Eddie. So, like, he's dicking over at least three people all at once. It's pretty impressive, really. Oh, yeah. And he, ca- he calls Eddie his job by exposing that Eddie had faked the photo. Yes. Uh, so things go poorly after this awesome dance number. Uh, awesome. He strikes Mary Jane and is horrified and flees to a church where the sound of the church bells drive this costume off of him and on to Eddie, who has just asked Jesus to kill Peter. Yep. Uh, Eddie becomes And then venom. he goes and finds <laughs> he, Jesus. He doesn't... Flint Marco. He doesn't... Does he use the word Jesus? No, he's talking to God. Yeah. No, he's just praying in he's general. Ta- he's talking right? to God, but he, but he, but he believes... He's at a church, and he's looking directly at the yes. Jesus crucifix on the but, wall. And they're all the same person, like if... the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Yeah, Trinitarianism yeah. is very foundational to all of this. Yeah, quit uh, quit trying to split hairs there. Yes, Maybe. okay. Wait a minute. Come on. Okay, wait a minute. All right, Franco is the son. Uh... Flint Marco is the father and the Holy Ghost, this goddamn symbiote from space. No, no, it's uh, uh, the symbiote is the father, um, uh, Venom is the son, and original Spider-Man is the Holy Ghost. They're the three aspects of Spider-Man. No, no. Willem Dafoe oh, no. is God, and Harry is the son. And the faithful butler Bernard is the Holy Ghost because Bernard, after being 
pointless for three films, mm-hmm. and he was in all three mm-hmm. films, <laughs> uh, chooses this moment, this moment, to tell Harry, oh, that uh, that night your father was killed, uh, I, I saw Spider-Man dropping him off. <laughs> yeah, no, Spider-Man totally didn't I, do I that. I checked his wounds. Yeah. It's like, huh, well, that's, uh, that's convenient. So anyway, uh, Venom goes and finds uh, THC and says, hey, man, wouldn't it be great if we teamed up to teach that Spider-Man guy a lesson or two? And that's, uh, that's about the extent of the dialogue that, that forms this unholy partnership. Well, Pretty what much. he says is, uh, you need, I know who you are. I, you need money for your daughter, and I want to capture yep. Peter for uh, other reasons. And I, I think that we'll, – we'll come back to this later, but I think the fact that he acknowledges uh, the Sandman's secret identity uh, and you know the, the life of um, Flint – Flint uh, – what's his last name? Quill? Marco! Marco. Marco. Um, uh, and reveals Hold his on. own face at the same time, uh, so that they're both on yep. the same playing field. They both know each other's secret identity and superpower. Does Flint, Building trust. Does Flint Marco have much of a secret identity? He's just kind well, of walking around in broad daylight in the exact same I outfit know, the entire but, time, stealing trucks of sand. Okay, so maybe secret is the wrong word, but there, there are two aspects to any person with powers. There's yes. the, the, the life that they live and are attached to uh, from a societal perspective, and then there's the identity of the character exerting the power. So it might... uh, they kidnap Mary Jane. They t- they take her up into a uh, a spider web at a construction site. Peter goes to save her. Harry ends up joining him. They fight. Uh, they more or less defeat the Sandman, although he really just kind of stands down at a certain point. Um, he comes to his senses. And then, then <sighs> yeah. Venom, uh, Venom goes to kill Spider-Man. Harry, uh-oh, Harry jumps in front of Spider-Man is in, and is impaled on his own uh, skateboard? Is that the best glider. way to this? It's a glider. 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 Impaled on his own hoverboard. Uh, the irony. the same way his father died. Yep. Uh, Peter then uses uh, empty metal pipes at a construction site to form a ring around Venom and then bang them to create noise, which drives the Venom symbiote away from Eddie. Uh, Peter decides to destroy the symbiote with a pumpkin bomb. Eddie goes, no, and jumps into the middle of it, and both the symbiote and Eddie uh, explode in a flash of light. Uh, Harry dies. He reconciles with Peter. They bury him, and then at the end of the film, Peter goes to Mary Jane's club. They hug, and they share a slow little dance as they start to mend their relationship. And Gwen Stacy is forgotten about forever. Forgotten? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, no, you, you, there's a whole bunch of stuff with Gwen Stacy that happens for no reason in this movie, and you didn't talk about pretty much any of it. But it, it, it really does I did not feel it was it, essential. There's a lot of stuff that happens for no yeah. reason in this movie. <laughs> yes. The, the, um, I, I think that maybe a, as good a place to any as any to start when we talk about this is the thing that came up several times as we went through that. Um, uh, structure. Mm-hmm. All right. Oof. Yeah. Any anyone want to start? Um. Well, I don't know if this is so much structural, but I mean, this is it's very much an overloaded movie, and I think obviously this is something that you know we talk about a lot with superhero movies. Kind of, you know, you got up the ante every single movie, and you end up with too many fucking villains. So you know, you can have one, you can have one villain in Batman, and then it has to be two villains, and then it has to be three villains, and then it has to be you know fucking everybody. And there's just too many, there's too many things happening here. And 
while I was watching it, I mean, Gwen Stacy, I think, is the most superfluous uh, one here. They sort of throw her in for no good reason. She's she's briefly seen being a classmate of Peter, and she gets saved in a uh, in a in another accident involving um, uh, involving a construction site, and she kisses uh, Peter in the sequence where he's getting the key to the city, and that's kind of a precipitating event for their breakup between MJ and Peter. But she's not really there for any reason. While I feel like the other the other sort of the villain storylines there are all reasonably serviceable if, like, you'd given them enough time. I think, like, it's kind of a pick-two situation. If you wanted this to be, like, the Venom and Harry story, or the Sandman and Harry story, or the Venom and Harry... No, Venom and Sandman story, I think any one of those... Any one of the villains works well enough that you could do it, but trying to do all three of those stories at once, just, it's too fucking much. Huh. Okay. I actually... I felt like... Um... Everything going on was... I, I felt like this was actually a fairly tight film, I guess, until the last act, or, the, like, the resolution of it. Um, and then... Well, we'll get to the resolution at the end, but um, it, it really felt like it's a story about Spider-Man or Peter Parker uh, having come to terms with his powers, like, he can control them, he's comfortable with who he is... Uh, but then a lot of things that he believed to be true are called into question. Namely, how good he actually is at being a boyfriend, uh, how good his relationship is uh, with Mary Jane, uh, how good he is at perceiving more complex dangers in his own life. Uh, the, the, namely, the dangers of like relationships that you have to constantly keep tabs on. Uh, he, he's good at the hero stuff and stuff that the spider sense will will pick up on. He's not good at actually interacting with a lot of his, his, uh, uh, the people he cares about. Uh, and then when he finds out that his, uh, the, the guy he killed was not actually the man who killed Uncle Ben, uh, and the thing that he's felt guilty about, uh, for, uh, you know, since his death, that, uh, if you, if you ever let your guard down and don't do the absolute right thing one time, then there could be absolutely there could be real immediate consequences. Instead, he finds out that it's a man that he never saw, and there's nothing that he could have done to prevent Uncle Ben's death. Um, so that there's the the connection in his mind between doing the right thing and being rewarded for it or it preventing something bad is severed, uh, and that's when he goes off the rails. Uh, so a lot of his uh, underlying assumptions about how morality in the world works are uh, called into question and he has to uh, reevaluate who he is as a person and a lot of the development that he goes through is externalized in other characters uh, because this movie uh, has abs none of these movies have any idea how to characterize anyone other than Peter um, uh, or at least certainly not Mary Jane like Gwen Stacy is a hollow character but I feel like it just calls into uh, focus how hollow Mary Jane is too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, this movie starts to, starts to go off the rails even before we start kind of piling on plot lines and villains. Mm -hmm. um, I think in part because of Peter, I mean, one of the, one of the things that the first two films actually did fairly well in setting up Peter as a protagonist was, establishing this kind of tension between peter parker mm -hmm. 
and his responsibilities as Peter uh, and Spider-Man um, and those responsibilities. I mean, you see this in the first film, but particularly in Spider-Man 2, um, which actually starts pretty well in, in that kind of tension. And this film starts with no tension yeah. in, in, terms of, in terms of that, right? Everything's going swimmingly. Um, and it doesn't quite move out of that quickly enough. And also the, the, you know, the sort of the problems with, you know, Peter's relationships, uh, you know, particularly with, with Mary Jane, they sort of come about not due to like any sort of definable external influences, but, but as a result of just like him being not mindful, (laughs) you know, of, of just sort of him either being forgetful or well not forgetful but just him you know just talking about himself and being sort of wrapped up in in this performance as well as spider-man and that's not a very it's just not a compelling character trait right i mean if if your protagonist it's fine to have like a flawed protagonist but if he's flawed because of like these sort of you know weak rinky dink like oh publicity and he's wrapped up in well performance it's just sort of who cares <laughs> you know it, it just wasn't compelling um, i because i think that act one spends mm. a lot of time establishing that uh, establishing the, the very tension that you say is missing uh between peter parker and spider-man because they go out of their way to show that spider-man is a fully developed character at this point if he is if peter parker as a being is trying to actualize himself both as peter parker and as spider-man he has succeeded in actualizing spider-man everyone loves him he's successful he's good at stopping people and most importantly uh mary jane knows about spider-man so he is uh he's loved by the 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 girl that he loves and the public peter parker uh he has not yet actualized he's still filling in the gaps in peter parker's self-esteem with spider-man's fame and i don't know if I don't know if he is, well, though. Right? I think that's I mean, what like, the narcissism of, of being what, obsessed with Spider-Man is doing. Uh, yeah. Because the thing is, the thing is, that's that's not in in the narration. That's not emphasized at all. Like, I mean, we, we, it just sort of like comes in incidentally. I don't know. Like, is there is there like a specific? Well, I, I think that you can like, point to the events of the, the... the the film uh, as the evidence that it's one of the things that's unstated. Because the reason that he's so obsessed with Spider-Man is because he's looking at the greatest stuff that he that he has done, like the, the opening. Uh, shots of Spider-Man swinging through the air, which you zoom out and you see that this is the Times Square uh, imagery that he's watching the movie and he's trying to get other kids to watch it because this is, this is what makes him feel the best. Uh, he, but think about what he's doing at his job. He he doesn't even have a full-time job. He's still scraping by, living in this tiny apartment. He has this relationship with Mary Jane, but and for the for the purposes of the movie, we have to assume that Mary Jane and Peter Parker never see each other outside of when we see them interacting because any real couple that exists off screen at all does not have any of these problems uh so we're gonna go with comic book logic and say that he is exactly as terrible at communicating as we see him being uh i'm just i'm just contrasting it with spider-man 2 where like that that tension and it's and in spider-man 1 as well Mm -hmm. i mean where that tension is a major part Mm -hmm. of the film like it in some ways it's the driving plot engine of, yeah. of the film and here we don't we just don't get that like it's there's not that that backbone to to hang everything else off. okay well i could Bester, you go and then i'll go oh yeah well i just want i mean i i had a similar thought one of my very first notes here was yes everyone loves spider-man everything's turning up peter parker the foundation of any good spider-man story 
So, uh, the, yeah, the, this kind of he's on top of the world uh, thing, I think, is sort of a poor place to start the story from. And then I was just thinking, I mean, it missed a very good opportunity for there then to be that tension later because you have uh, what could be a storyline where, you know, Eddie Brock uh, make, makes this, fabricates this fake evidence that uh, Spider-Man steals something and you see one scene of these people around a newsstand talking about how much they hate Spider-Man now, and Peter immediately uh, reveals that it's a fraud. If there had been, like, if that had been more of a long-term thing, if, you know, Spider-Man becomes, you know, public enemy number one and sort of has to has to deal with, you know, now being hated, and, you know, it takes him a little while to, you know, figure out how to, how to pin it on Eddie, that might have, you know, provided some better tension there. I guess I don't want Spider-Man to be the one that's hated in this film, uh, I'm I'm content to see Peter Parker be the one who's hated, uh, mm -hmm. and him have to struggle with that himself. Uh, sorry, Stefan, what were you about to say? Yeah, yeah. So what, what I what I would, I, I think that all of, let, let's kumbaya for a minute. I think all of you are right. I, I think that the issue here. Fuck is... you! <laughs> <laughs> we hate you, Stefan. Oh, no, the issue <laughs> is, um, I think, dude, to, to your point. I think thematically everything is in place. Mm -hmm. I, I think that I actually have no problem starting Peter where he is because everything seems to be going well, but it's it's sort of a facade. Like things are not going well, and he is blind to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's it is a compelling story to see someone who thinks that things are going well have his eyes opened to the world yeah. as it is and realize that that's crumbling and then have to rebuild it in a more positive way. Yeah, I um, I think of it as kind of... But I... Oops, Nick just disappeared. I think, yeah. Yeah, it looks like we lost him. Okay. Um, I, I assume... Yeah, do you want to just wait and gather our thoughts uh, so that he can hear where the rest of this conversation yeah, goes and we can all cut out this gap? Yeah, we probably should. Be, um, yeah. Just while we're while we're doing this, Derek, can you clarify what you mean about um, like what what tension specifically is lacking between which two things regarding Spider Man and Peter Parker? Like, so the, the I fact mean, that he the, can't the, get them the, into the balance. Yeah, I mean the idea that that Peter has to juggle his his own life, right? His own life as a student and mm -hmm. you know having a job and all of that stuff with his responsibilities okay. as Spider Man. And we don't really see, like, mm, yeah. in, in terms of the Peter uh, Parker side of that as... equation, you know, if, if anything, it's not it's not even that whole, like, first kind of montage where he's describing how things are going swimmingly. It's not about how things are going swimmingly for Spider-Man. It's, it's about how things are going well for Peter Parker. And it's sort of like Peter Parker well, both, like, having to deal with shit is, well, yeah, yeah. but I don't know. Like, all, uh, all of the... Well, anyway, go ahead. Now that we have think about yeah. <laughs> okay yeah yeah not, not the next what, what what I was thinking of is you know you've got the thematic pieces there you have starting at that point and then going downhill you have these different villainous characters who are embodying sort of the internal struggle he's going with which I think is an appropriate use of a villain oh yeah comic absolutely um the problem that I kept running into and this was particularly evident I thought in like the first half of the film. Mm -hmm is thematically I felt like it was all there, but the film itself needed, like, two more rewrites. Like, they needed huh. two more versions of the okay. script to get the story locked into where it needed to be. And the, the particular thing that I'm thinking of is 
we have that moment where he figures out that you know his uncle's killer was mm-hmm. not his uncle's killer. It was this other guy. And that happens about an hour into the film, after we have already seen things start going downhill. And I think that's when it needs him. to happen, though. Because no, I see. I think it needs to happen at about the half hour. Mark. Oh no, I, I think I absolutely think, not. No, no, okay. no. You, you, that you, should be you the have, complicating you action. Have no. that, yeah, you 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 have the the setup of the false happiness. This false, you know, everything's going great thing. He said. Okay. Then he finds out that this other man killed his uncle, and that can be an actual driver to to sort of snap him out of that and make him question all of these things. And that's when. You know, he, he starts to starts to fall apart. And then you can build the, that downfall on the back of a dramatic event and not on the back of Peter's just kind of being a dick. And then the other part of it is um, you know, th- this, this film's like two and a half hours long, and it is a fat two and a half hours. Like, it is busting mm-hmm. at the seams yeah. with two and a half hours. Uh, I, I would not have been averse to... Adding another half hour. Oh my gosh! To this film, you you either cut a villain or you add more time. I I think that and well, all of the villains like the villains are not as developed as they could be, but thematically I see what each of them serves in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean I, I think, I mean I was talking earlier about having to cut uh, a villain, and I I don't know who I would cut. I think. I think, like, just in terms of the storyline there, I think Harry adds the least, but given, sort of, James Franco's attachment to this and the fact that the last two movies movies have dealt with it, it would be very strange to come into this and, like, oh, Harry's not an issue anymore. He, you know, went off to Europe or something. There's not really a way to get around having to deal with Harry. So... I don't know. I don't. I think. I think I could make an argument either way for you know Harry and Sandman or Harry and Venom being the plot. But I. I mean, I think all of these. Well, it is. Guys are absolutely necessary, but I don't. I think that there are two primary villains in this film, and neither of them is a person. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that narcissism is the primary villain. That's the thing that gets everyone into trouble always. Uh, it's Harry or Peter's obsession with his with uh, himself. That bl- that mm-hmm. uh, makes him so concerned with Spider-Man, makes him blind to what's going on with Mary Jane, uh, as well as uh, you know think that he, he shouldn't have to compete for the the job at the paper, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it every moment of narcissism uh, later on uh, is a problem for individual characters. But the other thing that I realized watching this film, who the real villain is across all three Spider-Man films, and it's. Uh, Science, science misused. Uh, that every villain in the Spider-Man universe that we have seen is had uh, the yeah, the. I think in the last podcast we talked for Spider-Man Two, we talked about how they seem to go out of their way to give the villains an excuse to be villainous, take the the choice out of their own hands. The mm-hmm. the gas uh, causes it in Green Goblin. The arms take over Doc Ock, uh-huh. uh, and here we have. Uh, our first villain, uh, our first external villain, uh, Flint Marco, uh, says he's not a bad guy. He just has bad luck. Uh, he really believes that he's not a bad person, but and he's blind. He has a misperception about himself that uh, luck is responsible for all of the bad things and not the situations that he's putting himself into that go badly. Uh, and that is something that's true of Peter too. Like he, during the course of this film, he realizes he comes to uh, understand that being a good person is not enough. You have to be a good person and 
work on having high quality relationships, have good communication with the people around you, um, be clear with your friends, uh, what, what you're responsible for and what you're not be, be clear with your girlfriend, uh, you know, how you feel about her and make sure that when, when you're up, you're bringing her up with you. And when you're, when she's down, then you're trying to bring her up and you're, you're being down there with her and understanding, uh, and, uh, it's when he starts to, uh, sorry, I lost the train of, uh, that thought. Your, 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 your point though, your point is well made. Mm -hmm. You've got a, a, if you're thinking about it in, in science terms, the Mm -hmm. only alien that is not the, or the only villain that is not the result of science is the alien, which is a very science fiction trope. Yeah. 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 It's, for, for movie purposes, that's science. Yes, yeah. and they explain it as a symbiote, like, from a scientific perspective, yeah. it's going to do things that are good for both of you. Uh, yeah, they don't say, it's a demon! Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, though, I mean, I wouldn't say that. That's certainly not limited to uh, the movies. I mean, that's a that's a common trope in yeah. uh, Spider-Man's rogues gallery. Yeah. Almost all of them are, you know, various scientific experiments gone wrong. Yeah, and I, fair, I, and I think scientists... I think across heroes that's very common. So you know, it's often yeah. you know the same kind of origin story but gone wrong. So you know, all of most of Batman's villains have you know some kind of psychological breaking point, and mm-hmm. they you know break bad as, as opposed to breaking good. And you know, most of the X Men's villains are mutants who you know yeah. have I... external internalized society's pressures and decided to be evil. But to, to be fair, the um the science that we see in the Spider-Man films, the scientists themselves are really pretty crappy at what they do. Yeah. So we have, and the, and the first film, irresponsibility. Why, yeah. In the first film, why is Peter bitten by a spider? Oh, we lost a spider. Yeah. He escaped from the cage. Yeah. In the second film, why does Doc Ock suffer his tragic incident? I'm going to test this uncontained yeah. nuclear reaction in a fucking Manhattan penthouse yeah. with onlookers. <laughs> and in this film, it's why does uh, Flint Marco gain sand powers? It's because he stumbles into a reactor. Yeah. The scientists see that something has gotten into the reactor, and one of them shrugs and says, eh, it's probably a bird. Yeah, there yeah. are a number of scientific proving grounds that are not well contained or uh, intelligently located. I, I don't know why you would have any of these things inside of the city limits except the spiders themselves in the first stop. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's certainly possible that that like, particle accelerator sand thing was outside the city limits. We don't know yeah. how far that chase has gone. But certainly, I would say that Doc Ock's uh, experiment yeah. is certainly the most irresponsible because that's just going to blow well, they- up New York. And they make a reference to, like, he's in the marshlands, which, as I understand, like, the marshlands is, like, a park that's, like, north of the Bronx. So I think it is supposed to be, like, a familiar, you know, New York area kind of landmark. Why there's a nuclear particle physics experiment going on there. A uh, sand, a it, uh, electric it sand up, blender. Drives up the property value. <laughs> I assumed that they were just trying to use up a budget surplus so they could justify getting the same number yeah, next yeah, year. Well, <laughs> you know, b- b- before uh, before De Blasio came in, Bloomberg had this big tech initiative in the city, and you know this was yeah. this was part of that. He was trying to drive science in the city to to bring the tech <laughs> industry here. Silicon uh, Alley, they call it. I I think that the the first complicated Sorry to jump back. Um, the first complication that Spider-Man or that Peter Parker really runs into is the circumstances of Mary Jane's career, because that's sort of uh-huh. the first big adversary is the the fact that Spider-Man is successful and loved as Spider-Man, and she is just as in the public eye in in terms of like 
her mm-hmm. chosen career uh, or, or what she's trying to do. Uh, there's a, a direct relationship between public opinion and her success. Uh, and mm-hmm. her singing is just not as good for the, the venue that she's, you know, for her chosen mm-hmm. field. Uh, yep. And the fact that Peter is totally disconnected from her and not able to uh, support her through this, like, really ruins their relationship. So it's, a, you know, another instance where uh, a female character is just used... Developed only insofar as she will affect the male character. See, I, it, I don't have as big an issue with that, I think, as you do, because I think it's... I mean, everyone in this film mm-hmm. is contextualized in terms of their relationship to Peter. Yes. And since the whole point of the film is Peter's growth and development, I'm okay with the supporting characters reflecting Okay, that. that's, that's a valid I think point. What, what, what I would say about Mary Jane is we and maybe this is intentional, maybe it isn't, we only really see what she's going through from Peter's point of view, by and large. Like, we see a couple of scenes where she's by herself. Yeah. But we don't <laughs> she... We don't see the kind of, like, the experience that she's going through needs to be gutting. Like, uh-huh. it needs to be painful and uncomfortable yeah. for her. In... And I don't feel like we, we see that in quite the same way as we the no. stakes don't seem as high as they could. Yeah, yeah. exactly. She's, yeah. she's such a shallow character that her establishing shot of like the moment when she chooses to to talk to Harry over Peter, mm-hmm. she is just walking down the street and sits on a bench. They couldn't come up with anything for her to do that would be reflective yeah. of something she's interested in other than walking mm-hmm. down the street and looking at a cell phone deciding between these two boys. I thought yeah. the first and time it, we saw her was uh, on stage. Yes, but I mean later, like at, at the crux moment, she's just walking uh, along a street. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I think a good example of that is like you know her professional nature is you know she's been kicked off to Broadway and she has to you know get this work in this shitty jazz bar dive bar. Mm-hmm. And how do we learn that? Somebody tells us. Somebody mentions, oh yeah, she's working in a jazz bar now. Yeah. There's not like any kind of like we don't we don't get to see, see the sequence of her like having to There's swallow a lot her, of that yeah. swallow her yeah. pride and say you know what I need to make ends meet. I am about to get kicked out of my apartment. This is I feel this is beneath me, but I have to work here. I yeah. I agree. There's with a Stephen lot of that in this film. It, like yeah, it needed a ahead. rewrite because you're right, Derek. There there's a whole lot of people just saying their feelings like out in the street. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, but Duge, what what you were talking about, I think this this instantiates uh, a, a a tension in narrative that mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, maybe it'll become more of an issue as we go on and we get into more like long series films that Marvel is yeah. releasing. Mm-hmm. Um, between kind of like large scale narrative, so from from film to sequel to sequel, mm-hmm. and internal filmic narrative, because yeah. this film we actually start off with. Um, we actually start off with really only one kind of unresolved plot line from the previous mm-hmm. film, uh-huh. and and that's Harry, yeah. right? Yeah, and that's um, the one that gets resolved the, by the end of this film. That's, like, right? It get res- it gets resolved, and for for whatever reason, the you know, and I'm not saying this was a, a bad decision, but the cr- the film created a problem for itself in kind of bringing up another kind of long-term plot line throughout the three throughout the the previous two films which is the relationship between peter and mary jane Mm -hmm. um and creating like a new issue there yeah i'm gonna go Um, the i'm gonna go the other way on that though because the 
you you had so end of Spider Man the first film mm-hmm. you got the triumphant swinging through the city and that's mm-hmm. that's the climax of that film it's him yeah. swinging through and sticking to the American flag the end of the second film is go get him Tiger and he's swinging through the city and he's got the helicopters but the last shot of the second film mm-hmm. is this haunting shot of Mary Jane standing alone at a window watching him swing off into something where he yeah. could get killed at every day like that's yeah. her life. Yeah. And so at the end of the second film, we've established this notion that, you know, there's, yes, thing, things are kind of happy, but there, there's a gap there. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really notable that in this film, you deal with that, and then the end of this film is not a triumphant swinging through the city moment. It's the two of them embracing on a dance floor. But even granted that, like, there's still, like, that's still plot that you have to deal with right Mm -hmm. so i mean it creates uh, you know a series of constraints for the film right the film has to deal with this lingering plot with harry right yep i think it could have gone either way in terms of the the relation in terms of the romantics you don't think they had they didn't have to do that i think they didn't have to make that um a major plot in the film they chose to and again i don't think that's necessarily a the wrong decision Mm -hmm. But if you're gonna do that, that's two plots already, which is usually, which is plenty for that's most enough, films. Yeah. Well, I think that, that <laughs> um, all of these would be tied together and wrapped up fairly well if I, the, as I say, I had a problem with the resolution, and uh-huh. I really feel that at the end of this movie, Harry should have survived, and Mary Jane should have ended up with Harry, and Peter should have ended up with Gwen. Um, and it, it looks to me like that's yeah. what they would have done if they were going to make a fourth or fifth or sixth movie. Uh, but well, we, I assume we, we that can get none to of them wanted sequel, to come back. We can get to future sequel plans in a minute because that's an interesting story. Fester, you, you look like... Uh, yeah, I had a question just about um, Mary Jane's sort of role in the comics because the, the Spider-Man continuity that I am the most familiar with is the Spider-Man newspaper comic. Yeah. Uh, which is a very strange version of that where they're married and where she is an extraordinarily successful actress Mm -hmm. and like one of the consistent sort of things is kind of the reverse of the plot here where Mm -hmm. uh, she uh, Mary Jane is incredibly successful and there's a lot of very petty angst from Peter about Mm -hmm. how successful his wife is and how incompetent he is at uh, at his chosen profession yeah I'm just wondering like in the main comics uh, comic universe is mary jane a successful actress is she a struggling actress is she not an actress at all it's been on and off like i I think there was a a period where she was a an extremely successful model um now at this point i think she's still a model but they're not uh they're not married because they sold their marriage to the devil (laughs) yep yeah Uh, no i'm aware of that my my sort of loose understanding of the the spider-man canon is that he and gwen stacy are High school sweethearts. Uh, nope. But um, she and Mary Jane Watson were friends in high school, and they get to, or they they get to. I think he and uh, Gwen Stacy get together maybe in college, and then so, she is yeah. killed, and he meets Mary Jane through her, I guess, and then they get together after Gwen Stacy dies. No. So the way it happened oh. was, um, he met Gwen in college. Okay. Uh, when he also met Harry. Okay. Um, his love interest in high school, there was Betty Brant and there was Liz Allen. Okay. But not oh. was Mary Jane. Um, okay. There, there was not Mary Jane. Yeah. Mary Jane was for like 
a couple of dozen issues, I think, mm-hmm. she was hinted at because she was Peter's next door neighbor or mm-hmm. Aunt May's best friend was yeah. Anna Watson. Okay. Who was Mary Jane's aunt. And Aunt May was always trying to hook Peter up with mm-hmm. her friend's niece. Yeah. And of course the the joke was Peter was like, I don't want to be hooked up with the niece of my aunt's friends. Mm-hmm. Um and then the the revelation when Peter finally got roped into a blind date with her was at the end of an issue, door opened, and Peter is stunned, and you have Mary Jane there, and she's this gorgeous woman. And that, mm-hmm. that was the kickoff of that. Um, they were all friends in college, and then Gwen died. And Peter, like, Gwen was the love of his life at that point. Gwen died. Mm-hmm. And then for years afterwards, the relationship with Mary Jane built slowly. Okay. Um, That's in the 616, of course. <laughs> all right. Yes. Um <laughs> I, I guess I feel like the first three quarters of this movie, like, as long as Gwen Stacy is in the film, it feels like they're one of the, the things that the film is trying to do is express that Peter is really good at being the more innocent person, well-meaning hero, but he's not good at the more complicated aspects of a relationship where y- you have to, like, it's not just telling the other person who you are, it's mm-hmm. evaluating who you are constantly and making sure that you're always doing right by the people you care about. Uh, and he, he has to self-actualize in that way. And the, the breakup with Mary Jane, I, I, it feels, I, I understand why they forced it, why they had Harry uh-huh. come in and force her to do it, uh, because it wouldn't be natural for, for her just to write him off and break up with him right then. It would be a fight that a couple could then come back from. But uh-huh. uh, he needs to be at rock bottom after that. Uh, and he so, as so I, he can go dance. Yes, but the the thing that he does now wrong, it. the the moment when everything falls apart for him is during the key to the the city ceremony when he kisses Gwen Stacy, which is a problem uh, because uh, Mary Jane knows that Peter is himself. She has a relationship with him as himself, and she knows that he's Spider Man and has a relationship with him as Spider Man. She sees Spider Man kiss. Uh, Gwen Stacy, and then that night at dinner when he's going to propose, she finds out that Peter Parker also knows Gwen Stacy, their lab partners, and she has never heard of this person before. So Mm -hmm. suddenly, for the first time, Mary Jane has competition uh, with someone who is also in both aspects of Peter's life. And Peter is completely oblivious to this being a problem. He has no Mm -hmm. conception of, of, uh, of what is going on with her, why she's upset. Uh, and he needs to come to terms with that and learn to, to overcome whatever personal deficiencies or uh, disillusions he has about himself, uh, illusions he has about himself, uh, uh-huh. in, in order to reconcile the relationship with her uh, and grow uh-huh. as a character. I, I feel like this movie is really more emotionally driven than it is, like, plot, uh, there's a big crisis happening, uh, it's, it's like, I need to learn how to do better at my job. I need to learn how to do better in my relationship. Um, uh-huh. and but even even that kind of emotional plotting, mm-hmm. like, it needs it needs more... Subtlety? It needs more concrete... Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a- expecting subtlety from, from this film necessarily. Fair but, enough. like, it needs more structure and yeah. more yeah. kind of development of those relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, think, I think the... It doesn't help that Gwen Stacy isn't given much here either. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I can't. You know, again, she, she's a prop. Yeah. yeah. 
and she's got, yeah, she's I got can't. a headband. That's, That's how it, I feel yeah. about Mary Jane too. That that they're both just kind of props for him. Uh, but she's and, a well-established prop, prop, uh, prop as yes. opposed to the new prop and, that they've introduced for yes. reasons. Then, and, and we have we have a sense of her, if nothing else, we have a sense of Mary Jane's goals, what mm-hmm. she cares about. You know that she she is drawn in like broad strokes, but mm-hmm. she's drawn. Gwen is is not drawn. And Gwen, Gwen is a prop. That's why I feel like this movie intended to continue on after the end of itself because it it begins to set up a Gwen who would become a character in the next film uh and but then it forgets about her when they decide not to do anymore uh and it it really feels like Harry should have survived to me and uh they they should have gone on into another movie uh which would you know then have the famous gwen mm-hmm. stacy stuff and this is what i this is what i mean by like large-scale narrative mm-hmm. like i feel like we're gonna get more films like yes this, yeah. right and you know once we get into 2008 9 10 yeah more films where it's clearly a lead up to the sequel mm-hmm. or a lead up to a spinoff film or whatever yeah um that where you know a certain plot line might make sense within the large scheme of the narrative but you know as you know for the film as a self-contained unit yeah it it doesn't quite work or you know um just uh, supersedes it somehow yeah and i feel like this is this is the first film that we've watched where that really felt like a problem where the seams showed because of the expansion Mm -hmm. you know that they clearly wanted wanted okay interesting because i i felt like this was the first one where i like they were working with established characters at the beginning and they were able to pull back from uh, or rather zoom in from larger, like, there's a big attack that I have to go deal with right now. I literally don't have time to talk to uh, my girlfriend about what is going on. Um, and th- they were able to move away from, like, my problem is I don't have enough time to do everything, to I don't actually know how to do some very important human things, because I've never uh-huh. developed these skills. I, I think the thing that... We, we we have to contextualize this in a couple ways. Okay. One, yes, it it is the second sequel. It's the third mm-hmm. film in a series, and and there was an intent to continue on with, yeah. with subsequent films, uh, which which fell apart for a number. Of oh, years. God, and that's another thing. I I hope that the door is not closed for this in the future because Tobey <laughs> Maguire is not doing a lot. Kirsten Dunst isn't yeah, doing a lot, and true. I would I would hope that Sam Raimi would be up to continue this series. But then the the second part of this is you you no contextualize it as a uh, as a blockbuster film mm-hmm. and and the particular constraints of a, of a blockbuster film, and the, the film that I always go back to when I think about you know what what is a an absolutely perfect uh, perfect example of a popular movie that does everything right that I would want it to do right, and I think of Back to the Future, and what works in Back to the Future is you have Again, two layers. You have the thematic layer and you have the narrative layer. And then in the narrative layer, you have, you know, Marty goes back in time to 1955, has to make sure his parents get together, and then comes back. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the thematic layer, you start with Marty in a position where his parents are basically strangers to him. He has no idea who they are or why they're doing anything and mm-hmm. doesn't understand them. He goes back, he understands his parents, he builds a relationship with his parents, and then he comes forward, and that relationship is stronger for that experience. Um, the two threads play out together in perfect synchronicity and when the film ends because they have played out at the same point because they've come with the character on both journeys you feel like 
the characters move somewhere, you've accomplished something. Mm -hmm. In this, it feels like the two threads are basically there, but they're very out of sync with one another. Like, the actions that should be inspiring the thematic growth are not, and the actions that should be, or that uh, should not be inspiring the thematic growth are the ones that the themes are moving along with. So it it feels disjointed. Wait a minute. And you you see... Sorry, go ahead. I I was just going to ask him to repeat the, the concise description of your your point about which two things are not fitting my mind um peter the well we had gone back to a couple things one peter's break Mm -hmm. like where his world comes crumbling down yeah should be driven by a concrete action that happens and the logical action to do that would be him finding out that the man who killed uncle ben was not the man who killed uncle ben okay um that's where things should snap into focus and we can start to understand why he's why he's drifting why he's dicking around why he's, he's doing all this stuff why he's making bad decisions um and as, as a counterpoint we talk about well what what's the breaking point for um kind of the relationship between him and mary jane it's when he kisses gwen stacy on stage if Peter was already in a bad place where he was making bad decisions for a reason that was driven by narrative, mm-hmm. the scene where the Uncle Ben revelation would have happened would have been before that. So he is already in a bad state of mind, no. and then his action is being driven. I, I, I think it's because you're focusing on the wrong half of this this film. That the In the beginning, everything is good. Um, mm-hmm. But then slowly, uh, complications creep in. Mary Jane is not actually doing as well as she thought, so she gets fired. They're what has been going really well starts to fall apart because Peter isn't keeping in touch with her. Uh, and he is, he's letting the, the egotism of Spider-Man uh, mm-hmm. overcompensate for what's going on in his own life. So when he's on stage and he sees, uh, you know, that the crowd really wants mm-hmm. like there to be a romantic moment here, he yeah. thinks it's fine because he's Spider-Man. He can get away with anything. It's okay. And he, he doesn't care about her. And that, that should be clear to Mary Jane. But I, I, I get that, but it's not her story. It's his story, but it and th- this is. It's it's not just what is good for her. It's what bad stuff is he doing in ignorance and yeah. And when he crosses this line, he he breaks several things, and then in in a kind of like movie logic, the way that Kevin Bacon smokes a joint in Friday the Thirteenth, and then he gets stabbed by by Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, characters make out in Halloween, and they get killed by uh, Michael Myers. Like th- there is mm-hmm. a a karmic. Uh, resonance to this that right after that kiss the the sandman shows up and he doesn't capture him a villain gets away and then mm-hmm. uh that night mary jane breaks up with him he he's suddenly on his own and then the, there's a cut to the next morning um uh there's it like the, the sun comes up over the city and i think that is what happens right before uh or no he goes home that night tries to call her and then he receives the phone call saying that actually the the guy that he could have stopped during the robbery was not the man who killed his uncle. Uh, there was a, there was an you, element of random chance to it. I, I get what you're saying, and I want to I want to hear what Nick and Derek have to think yeah. about this. But my, my thought is, if we're dealing with the structures of a superhero blockbuster, mm-hmm. um, to a certain degree, that movement, mm-hmm. that sort of push forward it needs to be externalized in some way like there has to be an inciting incident beyond the character himself 
Because otherwise, I mean, like, we're starting from the position that Peter is being a dick. That's the position we're starting. Oh, I don't think so. I think we're starting from a position of Peter, everything's going really well. And no, but it's not It's not going well. He's just so ignorant no, that he thinks at it. the beginning of the movie, everything is going well. It starts to go wrong at the end of what I would say is the second act, which is probably like 25 minutes into the film. Or at the end of the first act, which is like 25 minutes into the film. That's when the cracks start to show Mary Jane's doing badly. Uh, uh, he's doing a lot of things in ignorance that are bad for other characters. And then at the end of the second act uh, is when... We, we get all of the, the, the bad things at once, and it sends him off into the symbiote direction. Uh, and he becomes Nick, Black Spider-Man. Um, don't, don't say Black Spider-Man. African-American Spider-Man, please. Um, well, first of all, I think... I think I think Dude is right that there is a certain sort of logic to how it's laid out now. I'm not entirely sure that like the moral logic of slasher films necessarily applies to every other genre of movie. I'm just saying, in that kind of movie logic, like you do something bad and something bad gets killed. Last Tango in Paris? Um, (laughs) Anyway, I mean, I think I would... This is a movie. This is a movie where there's like that first hour, there's so many, there's like four or five different plot lines all happening at once and like each of those plot lines disappears for like 20 minutes. So, I I, I, I... yeah, so I mean, I but I do think that like if if you had made it so like the opening set piece is um, like him failing to stop Flint Marco, so that there could still be that sort of element of oh I know who this man is I let him get away it's happening all over again um, to the revelation. But yeah, I do think I do think having that revelation I I think I do agree with the idea that it would be a good idea for that to be the precipitating event. Um, although again, I think, I think there could be a logic to, uh, Flint not being necessarily necessary here. Well, I I think think uh, that Flint represents Peter's misperceptions and you have to establish that scene of him sitting in the window and saying, I'm not a bad guy. I just have bad luck. It's, it's a, a human's, uh, desire to externalize the results of their, uh, or, you know, the consequences of their actions. I, and I think I think I think the similar line, you know, I'm not a good guy. I just have good luck. Could easily be descri- uh, describe Peter. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think in some ways, maybe one of my things is there's sort of a lack of symmetry in uh, the villains because you know Harry represents uh, Peter's past and Marco represents Harry's past and uh, Venom represents a potential future and you know sort of a uh, for him and. So I think you could either have two villains who both represent his past, or one who represents his future, and one who represents his past, but have the two, the two past villains and the one, uh, the one future villain seems a little lopsided to me. I, I don't think that they represent like past or future. That Harry represents like friendship and being honest with your your friends and social relationships outside of your romantic relationship, uh, where you have to you know uh, check in with people who are not just your girlfriend. Um, and, uh, the, uh, Brock represents professional, um, uh, actualization that, you know, he, he needs to have everything together at work and, and really be, you know, pushing. He's, he's got to stay hungry at work. The, the way that you stay hungry in, you know, your romantic relationships, in, you want to keep something happy. In the happy. gym or yeah. Jeff Bridges. <laughs> uh, yeah. In the boxing ring. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Push it. 
Yes. But you're real good. <laughs> he, it, it's why Rocky <laughs> wins when he's uh, running up the snow mountain in, instead yeah. of uh, Ivan Drago, who's just being measured in the gym. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so, so Peter has all of these things that he has to get in balance. It's not just, you know, figuring out how to tell a girl that you like her. It, I, I think that this movie just tries to become, like, more complicated in, in terms of uh, expressing the different aspects to life that are not just you know, trying to be a hero and trying to be the good guy. Because at the beginning, here Peter is doing very well because he is a good person. It's not it's not a matter of good luck. Like he is a really good guy because of Uncle Ben's influence. And ever since his death, he has constantly tried to, to follow the, the universal law that he learned from having not stopped that robber. Uh, mm-hmm. and then at the end, of, when he kisses Gwen Stacy, he thinks he's still being a good guy, but he has stopped being a good guy. He just doesn't understand how. And then everything falls apart, and he learns being a good guy is not enough. Um, okay. th- there, there are subtleties to relationships that uh, involve not just him not er, doing good things, but understanding that there are... I don't know. That, the way he relates to the symbiote, and the way mm-hmm. he does things that are the way it, it represents, like, confidence to him and uh, confidence as Peter Parker instead of the confidence of Spider-Man. Um, mm-hmm. And well, I, I haven't parsed that out, but that's... Well, that, that's I... that, to me, is a beautiful segue because we've talked a lot about oh. kind of the substance of the film, mm-hmm. but I think uh, Nick Bester might like to talk about uh, Emo I wanna, Parker. I do want to talk about Emo Parker. I just want to I want to go back real quick. Uh, I just want to say, like, dude, I really, I really like this sort of emotional interpretation you have of the film, and I want to, re- I want to be able to read it that way. I just, I can't. I think you're giving this movie more credit than it deserves. I'm like, I think, I think everything you're describing to me mm-hmm. sounds like a better version of the movie than what we saw. Oh, and I, th- I think it does sound better, but I just, I just think, I think there's a lot of sort of thematic elements and emotional resonances that you're reading into them and I think it's possible to read into them, but I don't think that they're, you know, obvious in the way that you uh, make them out to be. No, I I don't think that they are obvious. And I think that that is one of the things that the movie actually does well is that there are events that are happening that are subtle, but a lot of the scripted dialogue is not subtle. And because it is so overt about some things, the, there are other aspects of it that are less obvious. That they're they're doing things in the script that are more complicated than you would expect from a comic book film. But did, do you guys know who the third screenwriter was on this? Uh, it's Sam uh, it's Raimi. Alvin Sargent. What? Alvin Sargent. Yeah, who, and he also wrote Paper Moon, apparently. Uh, and Spider Man Two. Yes, uh, he's, he's an Oscar winning screenwriter. Yeah, yeah. the amazing, uh, the the first of the Andrew Garfield Spider Mans as well. Um, yeah, he, he's and there, and there are traces. Sorry, I know, I know, we're going to get to Nick, uh, but I just had one quick point I want to make. I think there are traces of what Dooge is talking about in the oh, yeah. film, absolutely. At, at, that that clearly would have been developed in subsequent rewrite. Um, one of them is like there's this odd kind of emphasis on these various like emotionally significant thematic objects, mm-hmm. like the locket, yeah, yeah. Um, and the ring. And and the ring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as as depicted in the film, they don't really like go anywhere. I mean, the locket is just kind of a a, a bookend and, yeah. and uh, you know a hammer. Yeah. Um, and the same same with the ring. But you know, like any any good screenwriter knows that like the way one of the ways you can externalize 
you can both externalize emotion like uh, Stefan was talking about but also use use it as kind of a narrative engine is to actually translate that emotion into an object mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um, and it's very clear and, during the the chase sequence between Peter and Harry right. or between Spider-Man and Goblin uh, that you know he yeah. the the ring gets away from him he, he has to yeah. he has to go back and get it and right. uh, correct me if I'm wrong does he give the ring back to Aunt May when he says when he acknowledges that he is not ready to to be her husband because he's not mature enough as a, as a man? Uh, I don't remember that. I don't, I don't remember because they talk about it, and I'm not sure. I I didn't think about it when I was watching, but I think that he might give it back to her, which would indicate to me that sense. this is supposed to come back to him yeah. and then go to Mary Jane or whoever in a subsequent yeah. film. And and there are also these other traces, like I mean. First of all, like amnesia. Mm -hmm. If there's amnesia in your film, yeah. that means it was you somebody's first rewrite. draft well, of this plot. Look at, yeah. look at that <laughs> chase sequence, though, because there's there's even symbolism in that chase chase sequence. Uh, the the time that Peter Parker is shown to be in real danger is when he's he's attached to a building and Goblin comes by and severs his connection to Don't, the building. Uh, don't don't give him enough credit to call him Goblin. That was not a Goblin. Okay, he's new Goblin. Uh, he's new Goblin. Well, That's how he's Goblin, Green Green Goblin. I'm just saying. Goblin. I will say. Uh, I will say. Uh, when he's in real danger is when he's riding around on his scooter. Because yes. that's when <laughs> that's when dangerous. The strap on that helmet does not work at all because it is clearly attached. Nope. And then the moment that he is lifted off, it is gone. It flies away. It is gone. Yes, but Can I also ask why is James Cromwell in this film? Uh, Gravitas to set him up for later films. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah. So Middlebury alum James Cromwell uh, is in this film because. Gwen Stacy's father in the comics was a police captain, and he died before Gwen Stacy get, did. So presumably he would have died in oh. film four, and Gwen would have died in film five. And... I, or the very end of film four or something like that, yeah. yeah. The the thing that, like I say, I, I wish that uh, at the end of this film, like Peter actually had to deal with going through a breakup and respecting that he was no longer with Mary Jane, because mm -hmm. that is, a, you know, a, an event that uh, inspires maturity in a person's life. Uh, that, that's a mm -hmm. level of growth that he needs to go go through, uh, and I think it would work perfectly because Gwen Stacy is such a good uh, a good fit for for him and the interests in his life. It really She's seems like Mary PhD, Jane would both work. a PhD physics student and a supermodel, and her father is the <laughs> police chief, so or is a a policeman. So mm -hmm. uh, the 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 potential for Peter's relationships with the, both of these two characters. Uh, you know, he she could be an asset to him in his professional life as Spider-Man because she's a scientist and she could help with his spider technology. And if he were to, to form a positive relationship with uh, James Cromwell's character, then uh, it, it would smooth out the... Uh, it's, it's like if Commissioner Gordon knew who Batman was, then mm -hmm. it would make things a lot easier uh, for yes. Batman. <laughs> I will... I will say, I think the class they're taking together is, like, theoretical physics. And I know in the logic of movies and television, any scientist is all scientists. Science. But I don't know how much theoretical physics is really needed for uh, spider duty. Well, what if it's, uh, what if it's the, uh, the there, there's vocation type of program within the sciences where Peter is just really interested in other sciences? Now, imagine if this hadn't been the last film in the series... And Gwen Stacy did go on, you know, and, and turn out to be, like, a brilliant physicist. 
Yeah, uh, then maybe they're studying organic chemistry in the next film. I mean, you can. I I imagined that the professor was going to turn into the lizard somehow, uh, or Mysterio maybe. Uh, uh, the lizard. It's Kurt Connors. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know enough about the actual. He got he got one arm. About. He's a lizard man. Yeah, but uh, you know they could make anyone into lizard. Like I I think that Harry could have become. <laughs> they could make. If, uh, Does he have the one arm in this movie? <laughs> no. Yeah, no. He has, yeah, he's only got one arm in this movie. I, I love the idea that at, at a certain point when they're making these films, they just say, okay, so we got these characters. Uh, this one's a lizard in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this I, guy's I, made I, out of sand. I, uh, I imagined <laughs> that Best Harry Kurt. was going to have a, a positive relationship with Peter at the end of this movie. Uh, also, Harry could have easily gotten out of this situation with uh, Venom holding the the sled because he could have just activated the magnet thing on his feet so that the the sled would have been taken away from the symbiote and aimed uh elsewhere than at spider-man uh we, we gotta we gotta talk about emo spider-man though. yes we, we, we put this off for too long the I'm best sure. part of this movie <laughs> emo <laughs> spider-man uh well once uh once spider-man merges with the symbiote uh peter parker becomes a disgusting disgusting man uh, and he has just awful hair, and he spends the entire time strutting around. Uh, and I think I think Dooge's point earlier about narcissism being the villain of this—that is clearly uh, the what the symbiote is uh, amplifying here—is mm. Peter's narcissism because he's strutting around like he's God's gift to women, and he does seem to oddly work. It does seem to oddly work well on both Betty and uh, Gwen. But then every single woman that he's strutting by on the street is clearly disgusted by him. Well, uh, they, I feel like they made Tommy McGuire look as cool as they possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't have a lot to work with here. Uh, I, I feel like I they're mean, pointing yes. the camera at Tommy McGuire and they're like, Okay, you, you're doing great, now it's time to strut. And then they just recorded what happened. <laughs> Yes. No, I think definitely somebody said to themselves, okay, this is a cool haircut. Yeah. Uh, it's very dumb looking. The, the, uh, that's one of the craziest things about this, is that the difference between him, Peter Parker, uh, pre-symbiote and post-symbiote is even less than the difference between Superman and Clark Kent. His hair is just, like, two inches to the side. Yeah. He couldn't even spike could... it up or anything. Oh, and he, yeah. he wears all black, and he's a little pasty, and he dances oh a lot more. What if he, he had dances? cut it short and gotten frosted tips? That would be so oh, cool. Then, <laughs> then, then, he would be Eddie Brock. <laughs> yeah, yes, because right. Eddie Brock... Right. <laughs> and Eddie Brock is essentially... Uh, him without the symbiote, uh, just yep. without the powers. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that that yeah. would actually that would be interesting if they'd given him a hairstyle that looked more like Eddie. Oh, mm-hmm. and then the film uh, could turn into single white female. I've never seen yes. that. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, uh, so amazing things happen. People fucking hate that dance number, but it's hilarious. I don't know why people don't like it. It's to me, it just feels so incredibly unrealistic for the, yes the the situation uh, yes i agree when i saw this years ago i hated this movie based mostly on this part now i think (laughs) that this part is actually it's poorly done and it's like poorly executed in terms of conveying what it wants to convey but it's very entertaining yes all all of those things yes it is very entertaining it's ridiculous (laughs) 
and stupid, and I love it. It's my favorite part of the movie, that, like, ten minutes where he's being full-on emo Spider-Man, and he is being the biggest dick in the world. We talked about this earlier, but he has decided to take Gwen Stacy out in front of Eddie, because Eddie mm -hmm. seems to be stalking him, so he's watching him take out this woman he has delusions that he's in a relationship with. He goes very specifically to the jazz club that he knows Mary Jane works at. Yeah. Uh, you take your then, to your ex's locate, uh, place of business to make her jealous. And then, and then he starts seducing uh, Gwen in order to seduce Mar uh, Mary Jane, because that's who he's after here. Mm -hmm. And she realizes, Gwen realizes what's going off and leaves it in, in an entirely reasonable huff. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, Spider-Man smacks her, uh, Mary Jane in the face. It's some amazing next-level dickery. The number of bullshit things he's doing to be the biggest oh, asshole in the world. The it's amazing. The thing that he does in this scene to me is the fact that he goes up to the stage when Mary Jane is about to sing and says, yes. I did this for you, plays the piano, and does not let her sing. She is not able yes. to speak for that whole mm -hmm. sequence. That is, a, that is an excellent point. Yes, he, is, he has a remarkable capacity to make it always about him. Yeah. Uh, um, and he, yeah, he, he's weirdly impervious to any, any acknowledgement of like what's going on with her. One of the, one of the, no perspective the outside of his own. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the things I really remember is, uh, after the opening sequence with, uh, her, uh, having her, you know, lukewarm performance in this musical, mm -hmm. she, uh, they're walking out and she, he's uh, like behind two women who in the most damning with faint, faint praise, uh, statement ever like she was a, she was good she was good uh and she has he has he has the most shit-eating grin on his face imaginable because he can't hear the subtext to that statement he just goes oh yeah she's great everything's great life's amazing yeah. hi, hi cynthia uh one thing did, you. did you guys notice that i at least i felt there was a distinct tonal quality in the uh the way that they treated the the singing, Mary Jane singing in on stage and uh -huh. in the the blues uh, cafe place, it's uh, it's called the jazz the jazz, it's club. Jazz, yeah. jazz 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 the jazz club yeah. Jazz. Is, that, is that really what it's called? Oh uh, God, I wrote it down. What is it? Club jazz. Uh, oh, I was really hoping it was called it? the jazz. Uh, it's, club. it's the jazz room. Nice. Okay. <laughs> where they play Perfect. jazz, jazz, and only jazz. Uh, and that's that's where Peter learns uh, that uh, even though he couldn't play the piano before, he can now. Uh, yeah. Uh, when his spidey senses tingling, yeah, you know when what Mary I mean. Jane... The piano anymore? <laughs> of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. That when Mary Jane is on stage, like her singing sounds kind of uh, flat, or she can't fill the room. And then you see that uh, other singer later, mm -hmm. and that woman can clearly fill the room. But then when you hear Mary Jane in the club, it really sounds like she's got a warm, like, uh, filling quality some, to the voice. Some people, uh, some people can't project and past I, the front row. Like, I, yeah. I feel like they, they could have developed that uh, if they had tried, that she is a good singer. She just needs a smaller, more intimate space. Yeah. She's yeah. She's found her she's found her niche. This is mm -hmm. I mean, I think there is some implication that, you know, in that last scene where he goes to see her, mm -hmm. she seems, you know, reasonably comfortable in her environment. She seems yeah. to be, you know, 
She's comfortable singing there. It seems like, you know, she's probably, you know, the star or one of the star yeah, singing waitresses. Yeah, it doesn't look like she's just a waitress. It, it looks like she's yeah. the, the focus of everyone's attention. So, yeah, and I mean, I think uh, there's obviously some amount of sound editing that went into it. So, mm-hmm. as, you know, make her sound not as good here and make yeah. her sound better there. Yeah, but, yeah, no, I think that it, is a... It feels like it was a deliberate choice for them. Um, mm-hmm. And something Absolutely. that if... I mean, you can see where if he had come as a supporting boyfriend who was really paying attention to her struggles, like, th- she has that good line that, uh, he's like, you just gotta get back on that horse. And she's like, I don't need the horse speech right now, Peter. I need you to no, feel no. what I'm feeling. Like, pay attention to what I'm going through, not just what Wait. you think I should do. What does she say, Nick? I wrote this down because it's, a, it's an amazing line. It's even better than that. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, Don't give me the horse thing. Yeah. Try to understand how I feel. Yeah. And I it, don't give me the horse. It, it felt I, like I think... Peter was slightly like autistic or Asperger's e here because he's just trying to like lift her up, and she's like, "No, pay attention to the emotions I'm feeling." Well, he, he's 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 not in tune with it, and I think at, yeah. at the end of the film, kind of the the point of that last scene is he comes in, and at, at the end of the film, he has gotten to a point where he can at least understand it, and he is I mean yes. able to be at that. Which I is, mean, it makes yeah. It makes perfect sense because, as we all know, he has the comparative emotional maturity of a spider. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. He's spiders worried, he's worried spiders are not... his head off. Yeah, no, spiders are not very good at sort of that kind of interpersonal, like, nonverbal communication. They just, nope. they don't get it. Oh. Everyone knows this. Can we talk about the fact that he goes into the, uh, the jazz club with Gwen and... Uh, he, yes, we can. He, he gives the uh, he gives the money to the, the hostess, <laughs> and then he's like, "Find us some shade." And so she Hot goes lips. to the only, apparently the only table that is reserved. But I'm, I gather that it was reserved for the coolest couple to come in because <laughs> he did not reserve that table. Reserved for bribes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's probably, you know, somewhat accurate. You know, somebody slips you a 20 and they have something that's set aside for that. But yeah. you forgot the best part of that because it's not just find us a place of shade. Yeah. It's find us a place with some shade, Hot Lips. Oh, yeah. There and, we go. And Hot Lips is clearly incredibly put off by this. Like, she's trying to mm-hmm. put on the brave face, but it's like, right away, sir. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, exactly. Like, Betty Brand, there's this weird scene where he's seducing Betty Brand that seems to be, like, finger-fucking her the, or something. The, the, and... Mm. <laughs> Is that not how you read that scene? I it did totally not like... at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that classic scene in the Daily Bugle where Peter Parker finger-bangs his boss's secretary. You well, just, just like... finger. <laughs> you did watch the same film, right? <laughs> Uh, oh, that's Finger another fuck. thing that we, no, we haven't no, talked he, about yet. He, he, watched, he watched the one with the deviant sex scene, Spider-Man. <laughs> I mean, yeah, don't get, don't get, don't give me the, don't give me the horse thing. That's clearly some kinky shit that they're into. Uh, it's a sequel to Secretary in which James Spader becomes Spider-Man. <laughs> Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Um, oh, I... I felt like I had a revelation during this film what? as about uh, J. Jonah Jameson in the Bugle office when yeah. is it is Betsy Brand is that Elizabeth Banks's character? Yeah, Betty Brand. Yeah, Betty Brand. Okay. Uh, when he's in his office, he's in this glass box. Everyone can see him. Things are coming at him all the time. 
Uh, and there is a loud buzzer going off constantly. He's in like a Skinner box. So <laughs> Betty Brant is doing an experiment on him, exposing him to things that he hates constantly just to see how he will react. <laughs> you need to take your medication. <laughs> Not that one. And he even jumps just like a rat in a box. And, and he has to take pills. She, she is buzzing at him and forcing him to take pills and, and dole out money. And yell all the time. Yeah, and at, at the end of the film, I, he's so psychologically broken that he's giving hundreds of dollars to kids for empty cameras. And the, the <laughs> only way that that uh, new slogan for the Bugle makes sense that's delivered by, uh, is it Ted Raimi? Uh, yeah, yeah. Not, Ivan is the yeah. writer and Ted is the actor. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, is if this is clearly a setup to see if he will go insane because nothing <laughs> about this is any yeah, good yeah. at all. They're, uh, they're gaslighting him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really think, I mean, I made a note about that. It was like, Elizabeth Banks and, you know, also Ted Raimi and uh, Bill Nunn, they're yeah. criminally underused in this movie. Yes. Because I, I would I would gladly, wa- if they had added an hour to this movie and it was just those four characters doing shit in the da- Daily Bugle office, yeah. I would fucking watch it. Yep. Like, if this movie had, like, there was a lot more sort of newspaper intrigue, like mm-hmm. trying to figure out that how Bet- Eddie Brock faked if this photo. If there was photo, any journalism in it. <laughs> I would have loved that. Yeah. I think I think you could make this like a newspaper thriller. This seems to be a pattern in these films. It's like the less we see of Peter mm-hmm. or MJ mm-hmm. or <laughs> any of the main characters. Yeah, that's, true. that's true. Bring there's, me more on there's, Yoda. <laughs> there's some great shit going on around the around yeah, the periphery like of this movie. More Aunt May, yes. please. Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, yeah. Ro- Rosemary Harris. She doesn't have. She's got like three scenes in mm-hmm. each of these films where she's kind and of, they're all wonderful. Yeah, she, she's killing it. They're the best. She's killing it. She's the best actor in these movies by a pretty. I mean, like, well, J.K. Well, Simmons. Best performance. I'm, I'm, Sorry. Yeah. 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 I'm, uh, I'm not, not going to grab on J.K. Simmons. Yeah, but you're she, right. He's she amazing. Is, she is communicating in subtle ways mm-hmm. that the other actors have not even heard about. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, no, that scene where that scene where Peter goes to her is like, hey, high five, everybody. I killed that guy who killed Uncle Ben. Yeah. And she's just like, no. Spider-Man doesn't kill it's, people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and she says it with such, like, pointed, like, yeah. you should well, fucking know this. It's, it's yeah. pretty clear to me that in the second film, she knows that Peter Parker is oh, Spider-Man. Yeah. And uh, in her hey. first scene in this film, she outlines the the journey that Peter needs to go on emotionally to become a man so that he can uh, essentially, like, I don't want to say deserve, because that sounds weird, like, deserving mm-hmm. a woman, but, like, when he'll be ready for an actual marriage and relationship. Uh, uh-huh. And that's, you know, before those problems are evident. Uh, so she, she sees all of the, the things that he's going through in that regard, and then when he comes to her and says that Spider-Man killed the man who killed Uncle Ben, she says everything that he needs to hear in order to, like, grow as Peter Parker in his relationship to Spider-Man. Because I feel like this is another instance of him needing to uh, keep certain things separate. Like, Mm -hmm. he needs to deal with the death of Uncle Ben emotionally as Peter Parker, and not Spider-Man. He can't let Mm -hmm. Spider-Man try to deal with it, because Spider-Man, his actions and the things that he's capable of doing, have nothing to do with the Uncle Ben death. Like, Mm -hmm. she's saying, you need to let it go, uh, and deal with it as Peter Parker. So it seems like she she knows, but she's not acknowledging that she knows still. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think that's probably right. Um, so I, I think yeah, she's fantastic. 
Yeah. I, I think it's worth bringing up. You know, we're we're a couple hours into this now. Oh my gosh. Certainly half an hour of, of it was superfluous at the beginning. <laughs> we were talking about the Tommy Westfall universe. Um, and McDonald Land. Yeah. But, you know, the, oh God. that was before we even started recording. I yeah, believe yeah. it was McDonald Land. There's, oh, okay. Uh, okay, viewers, it see, it in case seems, you thought you missed something important. Yeah. They're not viewing anything. They're listening. Yeah, you're right. Listen. <laughs> All right. Um,. You know, we we have talked a lot about this, and there's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about. I mean, there, there seems to be a lot of meat on this bone. Oh, definitely. And the, I think the the question that is worth asking, and maybe this will over time move into our, our final judgments, is, again, this is looked back on as the film that killed the franchise. Yeah. It is spoken of as a disaster mm-hmm. of a film. Um. You know, the dance scene that we talked about earlier is damned as a complete, you know, self-destruction of a multi-billion dollar franchise. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I want to get your guys' thoughts about why. Why is this the film that is, is completely shat on when, despite its flaws, it's probably the most emotionally rich and psychologically complex and thematically complicated of Derek, you, you'll take you had something to say. Yeah, well, I'm I'm wondering if the your characterization is like entirely fair. I mean, yeah. who's talking about it as destroying the franchise? Because I mean, you know, uh, most everyone Randy I was, know was going to direct a fourth <laughs> film, right? Yeah, he was going to direct I mean, I mean, a fourth one, but he he walked away partially because they couldn't find something that worked for the fourth film that he was happy with, and partially yeah. because he was pretty miserable after doing the third one. <laughs> I mean, and it was it was immensely commercially successful. It was. So I mean, it when was we, the, talk, yeah, when we talk about it like killing the franchise, I think we should maybe situate it in terms of like who's talking about it killing the franchise. Because if it's fans, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's a little more kind of understandable. I, you know, I could see why maybe fans would mm-hmm. would dislike this film. Um, but you know, like reviewing it now, I remember seeing this in theaters and thinking, "Man, that was terrible." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mostly because of emo Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but reviewing it now, like it wasn't as as bad as I had remembered it being. Oh. Like I don't, I, if I'd seen this, I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine that this was a franchise killer. No. Like I mean, no, not it, at all. it was not a complete stinker. It certainly wasn't a commercial bomb by no. any means. Um, so you know, I guess to take it back to your questions like i don't i don't know quite why you know people talk about this as uh you know as completely ruining the uh the Raimi film i Raimi franchise maybe i'm just reiterating an earlier point but i really feel like the things that are good about this movie are a little too subtle uh, and the things that are overt are a little too different and kind of out there like they're really doing some some he, he's making some major tone choices in that third act with the the strutting and the dance sequence uh, that are drastically different than any other kind of sudden shift in tone found in any of the other two films or earlier in this film. Uh, So it it almost feels like this sequence is entirely out of place, but I feel that it would have fit better if, and Nick has said this before, that he describes this film as being when Sam Raimi went full-on camp like this movie is really yes. campy, uh-huh. and it in some ways it almost feels like the truest expression of uh, the the potential for a movie like this in a series uh-huh. that is gonna you know span 
more than three films. It is not a good final film in a trilogy because the I, I think that the action climax is actually the best of all three. That the scene with the uh, the the tubes uh, and the destruction of the symbiote uh, and the resolution with uh, Sandman that he he really he did not want to become a murderer. Uh, in in some sense, bad luck really was just on his side constantly. Um, mm-hmm. And but he did let himself get into a lot of terrible situations. Most evident, or most recently, when uh, Venom talks him into trying to kill Spider Man, which he doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to kill Spider Man. He wants Spider. He wants to be able to get past Spider Man with money. Uh, he wants his his uh, medical problems solved. N- yet another thing caused yeah. by uh, the healthcare industry. But so, so here, here's uh, here is Sam Raimi talking about the film. This was from a couple years ago. Okay. Uh, I messed up with that third Spider-Man. People hated me for years. They still hate me. It's a movie that just didn't work very well. I tried to make it work, but I didn't really believe in all the characters, and so that can't be hidden from people who love Spider-Man. If the yeah. director doesn't love something, it's wrong of them to make it when so many other people love it. Hmm. Yeah. So was it fan backlash then? Yeah. I mean... I, That's I think a shame. That, yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly wasn't a commercial failure by any means. Yeah, no. but I mean... You can find a lot of examples of movies that we remember as being bombs that mm-hmm. aren't really bombs. Yeah. Like, Waterworld technically made money. Yeah. In the it didn't make a lot of money. Yeah. It didn't make it a just... lot of money. It was it was a failure, but it wasn't, it wasn't you know, it's talked about as though it, you know, destroyed yeah. Hollywood or something. It's because it costs this isn't such even in water. This isn't even amount. in, like... This isn't even in Waterworld territory. No, this is no. like the 27th highest grossing but film of all time. Yes, this is incredible. expensive yeah. film of all time when it was at, made. At the time it was, I yeah. Think, yeah. And, and it, so yeah. Th- this film, I'm, I'm looking at it now, this film was made for $258 million. Yeah, I think it was and the it, first movie that went above 250, million, wasn't it? Yeah, and it made $891 million. <laughs> this yeah. was a, like, an enormous success. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think... I think the fact that they didn't let Spider-Man lay fallow very long is is a good indication that it they they knew that they needed to change directions, they needed to change directors, but they didn't want to sit on this. So you know, yeah. obviously, you know, Batman and Robin comes out, and I'm actually I would I don't if you have, somebody has the numbers for Batman and Robin in front of them, I wouldn't be surprised if Batman and Robin also made some money. Oh, I'm sure, just because you know, I imagine it. Does um, oh, yeah. but you know, obviously, then we had you know the better part of a decade before anybody seriously tried to uh, do Batman again. And how long was it before Amazing Spider-Man came out? That was 2012. Was it? Oh, okay. I thought it was even, I thought it was even less than that. They've already decided to kill that second or that reboot. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's, we're going to have our two. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Spider-Man is just boffo money. Um, but yeah, no, I think I, but I think the fact that, uh, so I think a lot of it just comes down to perception. There's the perception that it was a failure, and thus we have to change uh, hands because you know, fan backlash and just sort of the myth that this movie was a giant failure uh, forces forces our hand. And I think I'm probably the only person here who, uh, when when seeing this movie, I walked out of it not unhappy. I liked this movie when I saw it, and I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure the people I saw it with too. I saw it with my girlfriend at the time and two of her yeah. friends. And as I recall, we all we all enjoyed the movie. 
Um, and, you know, I was kind of surprised when I was talking with other people. And I think it might have been, I think Dude was one of the first other people I talked with about this movie. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to learn that people hated it because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's it, it was my favorite movie in the series at the time. And even though I like watching it this time, I'm seeing sort of more of the flaws in it. It's still my favorite movie in the series because I don't like those other two movies. <laughs> Yeah, I was uh, going to say, some, somehow, some way, this was actually the first time I sat down and watched this movie the full way through. Okay. I, really? I had seen clips of it here and there. Mm -hmm. um, and even with its flaws, um, it was the most in, like purely enjoyable of the films I saw, sometimes yeah. because of those flaws in mm -hmm. the Spider-Man yeah. series. Yeah. But I, I also think it was, it was the most ambitious of them. And maybe that ambition mm -hmm. kind of derailed it at times, but... Like I said, I can see what they were trying to do, and there is a thematic richness and maturity there that I don't think is in the other films, and I don't think they quite stuck the landing mm -hmm. all the time, mm -hmm. but I admire the ambition. Uh, yeah, and, and certainly, like, historically, for whatever reason, I really like kind of failed, ambitious projects. There are things that I, you know, enjoy, even if I don't necessarily think they're good. There's something about, like, watching them and sort of appreciating sort of the production process and sort of figuring out where they went wrong is just something that I I would rather watch that than mm -hmm. a success. Like, a uh, like The Room. <laughs> like The Room. Uh, ambition, I think, might actually be the word that I was looking for earlier. That, that, uh, no. I was trying to figure out what exactly the symbiote does for Peter Parker, because it, it does turn him in, it uh, inspires a lot of behavior that is clearly asshole, like asshole behavior um but i think it's because it makes him really ambitious like aggressive yeah uh but a lot of that aggression is him just standing up for himself in ways that he normally doesn't because he's so kind of subdued and worried about trying to do the good thing uh when when he yells at his landlord for instance uh you know his landlord is like you need to pay your rent and he's like you need to hold up your end of the landlord deal and fix this door uh and at that moment, it, and it's funny that uh, Peter Parker is so established not only in our minds as a good guy, but in the minds of all of the characters, that the moment he flies off the handle and yells at the landlord, the landlord is like, whoa, he's actually a good guy. I give him a hard time. There must be something wrong right now for him to act like that. And then that uh, moves the landlord into kind of like a fatherly position for him, uh, which was very interesting to me that they were doing some funny things with that relationship. Uh, but I... Uh, on that note, I do think that the landlord is another one of those really good background characters uh, who deserves more screen time, uh, along with Bernard. Uh, who? Uh, Bernard. Did Did you guys feel like the relationship between Bernard and Harry that they were relying, the filmmakers were relying on you understanding the relationship between Alfred and Batman? Uh, yes. And <laughs> that there are a couple instances where Bernard is just a real wise ass to Harry. Uh, of course, of course. Uh, Butler, Butler equals confidant. <laughs> yeah. Harry says, like, oh, we're having company. And he's like, company? Like, clearly, these are the two, only the, the, the only two men who live in this giant mansion. And they have both gone insane from spending too much time alone. <laughs> <laughs> Bernard, do I have a girlfriend? I don't know. <laughs> do I have any girlfriends? I don't believe so, sir. <laughs> and that's a moment when, uh... Uh, to get back to my narcissism point earlier, like, narcissism is really what drives 
Harry's thirst for vengeance because he's he thinks that his initial impression of the the situation is the only one that matters. He doesn't want to hear any other interpretations. But when he gets knocked on the head, in what, to be fair, he probably did get a fractured skull from that. I don't care if you've got a super soldier formula, but when he gets clotheslined on that spider web, which is significant, no, he should I think, really uh, be dead. Yeah, he flips and falls like four stories, lands on that, that dumpster head first, and then uh, is, is laying in the alley. Um, but the moment that his ego is gone because he doesn't know who he is anymore, he becomes an amazing, good, happy, friendly person. Uh, but when he gets rejected by Mary Jane, uh, after they're listening to the twist and then kiss, which I thought was also significant, the fact that they're listening to the twist, which is a song about getting down when your parents aren't around, but without touching each other. So it's a song about crossing the bridge from friendship to romance. Uh, they kiss and then he... She rejects him, but not because she doesn't like him, but because she immediately needs to go and tell Peter that, uh, that, uh, oh no, he forces her to, to do that breakup. That's yeah. what triggers I, I, yeah. I, I his really, rejection. And yeah, no, really, he goes, yeah. he goes crazy yes. and holds her hostage. I love hostage. that yes. your interpretation of their arc hinges on <laughs> the thematic, uh, undercurrents of the twist by Chubby Checker. <laughs> well, I'm just saying it's a, it's a thematically relevant musical choice uh it wasn't just a random song uh it, it does convey something but uh okay. it, it seems like well it's not clear why she runs away but i had thought that it was because she actually needed to reevaluate for her feelings for him and how well suited to each other uh harry would be with mary jane rather than peter um, because it does seem like there's a natural chemistry. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just between James Franco and Kirsten Dunst. Certainly more than between actors. James, uh, between uh, mm -hmm. uh, Kirsten Dunst and Toby Kirsten McGuire. Dunst and Toby also McGuire. between James and Franco and Toby McGuire. Yeah, and there's, yeah. there's James. no chemistry there. But it, it also feels like there's a little bit of chemistry uh, more than with uh, Kirsten Dunst. But between Toby McGuire and Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh, yeah. But uh, to be go ahead. to be fair, who doesn't James Franco? He had chemistry with that fucking blow up doll in Thirty Rock. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 It was a pillow. It was a body pillow. Was it Yuki? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was Kimiko. Uh, it, it was Kimiko. Like that? It was definitely Kimiko. Yeah, you're right. Um, he certainly did not win you know uh, Anne Hathaway at the Oscars. Uh -uh. You know what James Franco uh, did not have chemistry with? That omelet that he, he fucks was up eating. that butter. <laughs> oh, he, he's a terrible cook. I don't know. I don't know if this was in the script or or if this was improvised on set or whatever. But the way he makes that omelet is completely incompetent. He, 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 he the the first time he like he he uh, he flips it over. It's it's like in the pan and it's a perfect omelet. Fine. It's ready to go. You just yeah, yeah. slide that yeah. onto the plate. And then he decides to do this like showboating because like, he's a narcissist. That's not how you make an omelet. He's showboating. <sighs> he's trying to show. But also, off. but also, like a few scenes earlier with mm -hmm. him, which means like an hour ago. Yeah. Um, we had already established <laughs> that like even in his amnesia thing, he still has like goblin super reflexes. Yeah. But not when it comes nope. to omelets. Not yeah. when it comes to omelets. Eggs, a goblin's <laughs> only weakness. Well, uh, there are there are a couple. Also, his own in bombs in his face. The, the, he, he doesn't yeah. like that. There are a couple instances where Peter clearly loses his spider sense. I can't, can't remember what they were specifically, but like he gets totally caught off guard uh, once or twice. Yeah. yeah. Speaking speaking of spider sense, I mm -hmm. think my favorite line oh, from Venom is when uh, is when he's holding um, 
Mary Jane up and says something like, my spider sense is tingling, oh, yeah. and, like, eyebrow waggles, yeah, and yeah, clearly yeah. I, spider sense yeah. is a, uh, <laughs> oh. is a not very subtle euphemism for his dick. <laughs> that was another, uh, not that, not related to that line specifically, <laughs> but, nope, nope. uh, when, uh, Venom has, has shot Venom webs everywhere, which I guess are made of the symbiote, I don't know, has suddenly his body learned to metabolize food into spider silk? Or kind of, some kind and of he like knows about the spider sense, which I don't... Wire. He's an alien. Uh, he has no rules. Not even his own. Well, he's clearly actually good at doing research because he finds out who the Sandman is. Yep. Uh, he's and he's not him. just out there setting up uh, the camera the for the easy spot of sh- shot of Spider-Man. He's actually a hard-working like, photojournalist, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, the, in the climax, when Mary Jane is being held in the web... There are several shots of her actually doing something for herself and trying to get away on her own. She's not just relying Dropping on Spider-Man to come and save her. Shit. Yeah, and she's she's rolling out of the way. She's trying to climb. Like she's she's starting. She to hits Venom in the head with that brick. Yeah. Uh, Our bar is, yeah. is so I, low. It, she, Our solo is, is she is capable of yeah. movement. Yeah. Uh, she is capable of moving wall hostage, mm-hmm. thus she shows agency. Yeah. It's yeah. sad but true. I, I think uh, I think on that note, it, it might be time to move into our final thoughts, considering we've talked for a okay. long time about this film. But we haven't been repeating yeah. ourselves. No, anything, no, we haven't. So. No. There's a lot and, to talk about. Uh, and weirdly, I don't think we've really talked about either the Sandman no, or Venom very much. We have no. not talked about... No. We have barely talked don't about... Don't worry... My final thoughts will be about Flip well, Marco. How about uh, how about you take us into that now? Because I'm really interested to hear I, your interpretation. Sorry, Dooch. Yeah, I want to say one more thing before okay. we move into final thoughts. It was just about uh, you have a the nature of final thought. Uh, secret identity right. versus uh, like the nature of secret identities and the keeping of secrets. That in the beginning, it's clearly established that Harry knows who Spider-Man is. And Spider-Man knows who Harry is in Green Goblin. Like, there's there's something that they know about each other that Mary Jane does not know about Harry, that Peter has never let Mary Jane in on what what, what happened between them. She asks, uh, you know, you guys used to be really good friends. Now you've got all this tension. Like, what's happening there? And he, he he's not open with her about that. And that comes back to bite him in the ass because she doesn't know that she can't really trust Harry, that there's a danger that she has to watch out for. Uh, oh, that's, does uh, he know about Harry Goblin? Does he? Was, yeah, because the first scene yeah. of them together is after the, the show when he chases Harry into the street, the, the first instance of someone yelling their feelings in the street, uh, and, and says, like, uh, you know, I, I loved your father too. Uh, or, Harry says some wise-ass comment about, yeah, we're friends, Peter. Like, uh, why don't you tell that to my father who's dead? And implies that, you know, it's because of him. Uh, and then the next scene with Harry is him in the secret lab injecting himself. Yeah, but does or with but mask. does but does Peter know that he is doing that before he gets attacked on the scooter? Uh, I don't think so. No, I'm sorry. He no. hadn't become he hadn't become uh, okay the goblin yet. But I but there's he knew that uh, there's all this whole simmering resentment. Yeah, well, that's okay. uh, and, and blame okay. Spider-Man and himself for it. That's the uh, that's the trouble with Harry. <laughs> um, need to talk about Harry yeah I had a larger point about the nature of secret identities and whatnot, but that's it. I don't remember how it was phrased or anything or my evidence for it well, you, so we can move you, on you think about it for your final thoughts and we'll start our final thoughts with Bester 
All right. Do you have so, something to help us uh, celebrate I have the holiday? No... I do. I do have something to celebrate the holiday. So, uh, as you may have guessed by now, I have no idea when anybody is listening to this, but right now it is and Easter. And by guessed, you mean you uh, said you said earlier today in the episode <laughs> that it's Easter. I'm not the only one who's mentioned yeah. Easter. I think Dude mentioned Easter earlier. So, when I sat down to watch this last night, I said to myself, I'm going to shoe in something about Jesus here. And by God, I managed it. And it is Flint Marco. Flint Marco is our Jesus allegory here. Now, allow me to explain. First of all, I want us to go back to the very first, uh, what we see when he comes into uh, his wife's apartment. So he comes in, he sees his daughter, he gets his, uh, he gets his stripy shirt that he's going to wear for the rest of the movie. Then what does he do immediately after that? He breaks bread. We see a, ver- a shot of him with a loaf of bread breaking it in half, just like Jesus does at the Last Supper. And we have in this character this uh, this um, unwilling criminal who's being pushed uh, further than he wants to do. And we have in the figure of Dennis Carradine, Judas. He is the Judas here. He has pushed, uh, he has forced... Uh, Flint's hand. He has forced him to kill Uncle Ben, something that he doesn't want to do. And he gets away with the money. He gets away with his 30 pieces of silver. And then he is hounded to his death by Spider-Man. Uh, and we have all of these lines about, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a bad man, I'm just not lucky. Or, uh, right at the very end, um, he says, if I can find my line, I will find that in a second. But you have all these things about, uh, he keeps dying and coming back. He like Jesus, uh, who died he ends several up several times and then came back several times. Yeah, well, he gets he dies a bunch of times. He dies and then he comes back and then he dies mm-hmm. or he goes he ascends. Uh, he ascends just like at the very end of the movie. Uh, Flint turns into a pillar of uh, sand and just flies away, just like Jesus after, ascending to the heavens. After he has learned to ask for forgiveness and forgive himself. Yep. Yes, exactly. Forgiveness. Not unfortunately, not a very Christian theme, so there's not really a way to tie that in. But there's a lot of things in this. All right, his line at the very end when he's explaining himself to Peter: "I didn't want this. I didn't have a choice." Which I think we could all see some parallels with: "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" He didn't have a choice in that. The whole thing in in the Garden of Gethsemane, or however that's pronounced, is him not wanting to die. He doesn't want to do it, but he has to. He is. He doesn't have a choice in the matter. And he's unjustly executed and uh, driven to, uh, to his death repeatedly by, you know, the forces of law and order, the Romans. So uh, the cops chase him into, uh, into the sand pit, and he dies there. Um, a very vengeful, uh, bloodthirsty uh, Spider-Man, as kind of the Pontius Pilate here, executes... Uh-huh. Um, uh, executes him, and then some number of days, I choose to believe three days later, uh, Flint Marco comes out of the water and resurrects again a new man. It's this It's this man... Oh, and the armored truck robbery, that's uh, Jesus uh, dealing with the money changers. It all holds together perfectly. <laughs> and Jesus does escape from that incident, I believe. I don't, I don't yep. think that he's called to trial yeah, for doing ex- that. Exactly. He gets away with That's not why he's executed. Uh, where, where does... Um, uh, where, but yeah, where does uh, Venom fit into this? Um, he's an alien. 
He's the tempter. He's he's the devil who uh, who takes uh, Jesus into the yes. uh, when he's, he meets him in the desert mm-hmm. and he offers him all of these things. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Or you know, and if we want to go like another version of the devil, we have starring Willem Dafoe, The Last Temptation of Christ, where it's not only like this kind of metaphorical temptation out in the desert, but he very literally is given the second chance at light. He gets mm-hmm. to you know have this family, and that's all. That's all that. Uh, Flint Marco wants. He wants to have a family. He wants to do this for his children. Mm. He's he's sacrificing himself for the lamb. I think it's... I rest my I case. Flint Marco is Jesus. It's airtight. It's airtight. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything, and as we all know... Also? Yeah. Also? Played by Thomas Hayden. Church. 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 <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, and I... I actually even tried to, like, come up with, like, some numerology things to try and fit uh, JC and FM. Well, the only thing I could get... Initial is... H, which is Jesus' middle initial, Jesus right? Jesus H. Christ. Jesus, H. Jesus Christ. Horatio Christ. Yeah, I, I, had not, I had not thought about it with Thomas Hayden Church. I was trying to do it with Flint Marco. <laughs> the only thing I could come up with was that J is... Uh, both J and C are prime numbers in the alphabet, the 11th and the 3rd. And if you combine F and M together, you get 19, which is also a prime number. I don't know enough about the Gospel of St. Thomas. I don't know. the Gospel of Thomas. I don't know about, enough about numerology. Oh, Thomas. There you go. And, and there's threes all over this uh, movie, Thomas Hayden Church. And 33 is the number at which Jesus died. The age at which he died. Nailed it. Yeah, yeah I rest my case. And I would like to go back to my earlier point about him being the father and uh, Harry being the son and the alien symbiote being the Holy Ghost. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It all fits together. Derek, do you want to follow that? So, happy (laughs) Easter, everyone. Follow that. Happy (laughs) Easter, everybody. I'm going to look, you do something. I'm going to look through my notes to make sure I didn't forget anything. Happy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess. I don't have too many final thoughts on this the one thing i'll i'll say is that this this trilogy was just like looking back on it this was this spanned over such like formative years of my yeah. <laughs> adolescence yeah. and uh early college and now uh, it's experience. a retrospective feel um, old today and now it's a retrospective um which i don't know how i feel about that <laughs> um i don't but you know there's there's a weird way in which it was kind of uh, <laughs> uh, it kind of fit in that era in a weird, in a weird sort of uh, sort of way. The 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 kind of approach to blockbusters um, that uh, that we saw in, in our superhero films. This was really before the uh, the turn of uh, Batman mm-hmm. Begins, uh, as we might call it. Even though this is, uh, I guess, this is actually yeah, the year it's after. Be- before uh, the turn of the Dark Knight, oh, yeah, right. where which was really the, yeah. the more impactful one tonally and thematically. Um, and so there, there, it, you know, it was still a period where there is a kind, I, I don't know quite how to describe the tone, but there was a real tonal shift, it seems, uh, after, after this point in a lot of, uh, a lot of the Marvel product, even though, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing beginnings of, of that. I, I don't know, like thinking about, uh, um, Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider and, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, that's not, not so much of well-formed final thought as a, a series of 
thematic ramblings about the the na- the na- <laughs> about the significance about of this the nature of age life. and dying. <laughs> but I'm glad to be moving on. I'll say that I'm glad to be moving on from this series of three films with Tobey Maguire. Dude, your final thoughts. Um, I've just been going over my notes and trying to pull out anything or look at another one. Anything that uh, we haven't talked about. Um, let's see. Peter is a nerd, uh, even among nerds, uh, receiving spitballs and, and general tomfoolery <laughs> in, in, college. Uh, in, in this college course. <laughs> and this is not, like, introduction to science. No. Like, yeah. this is not science ha- 101. Uh, this is probably, like, a graduate-level course that he is taking as advanced coursework. Yeah. Um, and he's getting spitballs because he's the nerd. Uh, As someone who teaches freshman courses mm-hmm. basically every semester, I can tell you, even my students do not do, do spitballs. <laughs> when you're looking, at least. The professor wasn't yeah, looking. Well, I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeah. yeah. We, we haven't gone over what I would call the worst line in the film, which I will come back to. Um, let's see. The irony of uh, Gwen probably wanting to become an, a model so that she would not die in an office, almost being killed in an office... Uh, uh, there you go. Uh, oh, that crane, yeah, crane. also. That's, that that that's whole crane I mean. set piece. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's just that was another thing. The most malicious crane. Is that at the be- for the, the first like two acts of the film, Spider-Man uh, is successful in every battle that he has. Uh, he he has to fight Harry, and he actually uh, succeeds finally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the uh, the other instance of needing to save someone was from a kind of like natural type disaster. It was just a, a mechanical malfunction. Uh, and when uh, Sandman shows up, that's when he suffers his first like defeat at the same time as the all the other complications right then. Oh, the great line after, right at that moment, actually, uh, when he's on the, the roof and he, he takes off his, his hood and he's dumping the sand out. He's like, where do these guys come from? Uh, because he never gets to see the, the origin of any of these characters. Just suddenly there's these horrible villains. But the answer is always science, science the same place that he came from. Um... Uh, Let's... My favorite line in the... Sorry to interrupt oh, you, dude, but I, I realize this is the final thought I should have ended with. Uh, my favorite line in the film uh, is... Uh, it's that scene where Mary Jane comes into the theater uh-huh. and sees that she's being replaced. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and the producers are like, oh, didn't somebody call her? It's like, uh, and they have, have the conversation. It's like, uh, look, you know, we can say that... Uh, we can say that you know you you fell yeah. ill or you know whatever, and and it, and it's like and she she storms out and at the end he's like that was so poorly yes. handled yeah <laughs> oh like, god because there's the two producers like, that's this film the, yeah. the, the two producers <laughs> right. and one of them like is very concerned about her feelings and the other one is very concerned about her understanding that she does not she cannot be here this is not her job anymore and he's like someone was supposed to call you uh we can tell or no all of the papers gave you bad reviews we can tell them you're sick <laughs> um let's see oh that uh uh the just going over my notes again um the goblin like harry uh once he is uh, in touch with his, like, remembers stuff about his father and has the bad influence from his, his father's madness, uh, then his he stops being space concerned dementia. Of... Yes, <laughs> his, his space craziness. Uh, uh, he stops being concerned about Mary Jane as a person or romantic interest and only wants her as bait and a weapon against Spider-Man. 
which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, he loses the same like sense of values in relationships as soon as the the um, other half of his like superpowered life appears. Uh, the I, I did think that the the scene in the night church was really interesting, so much so that I wrote ah. night church with capital N and capital C because it seemed like. But it, they they cut to this like very dark church with the 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 black Spider Man sitting on out, outside on the steeple. Yeah. Uh, there's that very distinct shot of the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when he gets in the church, like he's trying to pull the the suit off and become a, a good person again, um, because the the professor has told him that it's hard to get the symbiote out. You know, once it attaches itself to blobby blue. Um, Nick, uh, does this play into your theory at all? The sound. Uh, yes, I did find a note about this. My note. Jesus didn't want his teachings to calcify into organized religion, and so all this venom shit goes down in a Catholic oh. church. <laughs> that's uh, that's actually pretty pretty good. I like that. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the the things that happens in the fight between he and Harry when he has the symbiote is Harry throws the pumpkin bomb at him, and instead of throwing it off into a neutral direction. He, he's like, turnabout's fair play, you try to kill me, I'm gonna try to kill you right back, and that's where he actually gets the star, the scar, which is, it, it kind of seems to be, like, what uh, inspires, like, when he comes to him later and says, let's work together, which we didn't talk at all about the, the superhero, supervillain team-up uh, when Spider-Man is working with Goblin, right? Like, they become friends again. That's a big deal in the movie, and I don't think we touched on it at all. I m- mentioned it in the no. summary, but it's like, you know, there, there's the okay. resolution there. Yeah. But you, but you didn't talk at all about, like, that, That you were just sort of, and Goblin shows up. Yeah. become friends, I guess. I was... <laughs> and it's one of the last events before the strutting scene. So, I, I think him uh, uh, throwing that bomb in Harry's face really gave him the confidence to strut down the street and make a fool so of good. himself. So good. <laughs> yes. Um... Parker in the Night Church, uh, kidnapping Mary Night Jane, Church. Venom tracks down Sandman, appeals to him as across the secret identity border. Um, Harry dies after forgiving Peter. Oh, okay, yeah. So my my final thought uh, will be what I consider the worst and most unnatural line in the film. I live okay. in the presence of great truth. What uh, all right? What uh, Flynn? I don't know who says that. Flint's wife says to him about the the daughter. That's the way yeah. to describe that she has to live with the daughter. Like the consequences of him being in jail. I live in the presence of great truth. Yeah. What? <laughs> wouldn't that be somebody married? Wouldn't someone married to Jesus oh, totally. talk in those kinds totally. of terms? Mrs. Though Jesus would be all over. Yeah. Him. Mary Magdalene. Exactly. <laughs> I want to. Uh, I, I, looking through my notes, I found one of my favorite lines. Um, so when it's revealed that uh, Eddie Brock has faked the photo supposedly implicating Spider-Man, Robbie uh, very uh, emphatically says that uh, the Empire State Photographic Department says it's a fake. Yeah. <laughs> the Empire State Photographic Department. That's an unimpeachable which, authority. I just love... <laughs> yes. Did we touch on uh, Stan Lee at all? Oh, God. Oh, I fucking hate that uh, cameo. It's a terrible cameo. Ever done. Yeah, it it feels very unnatural. What is just what is his line? Uh, I guess it. 
I guess one person really can make a difference. Enough said. Which feels like it, it belonged in the first enough said. film. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, enough said. He just shrugs and walks off. Yeah. And like, well, thanks, Stanley. That yeah, was that, helpful. That, that was less natural <laughs> than his that. cameo in Mallrats. <laughs> That's a great cameo, okay? Um, as we as we wind down here, uh, Derek actually took what my final thought was going to be. It was going to be that line in the theater. So, so I've I've had right. to improvise a second final thought, and I, I think I'd like to devote devote this final thought to uh, during the climax. We get a uh, you know the characteristic uh, example, and I think the best example of this ever was probably in Trading Places, but this is a pretty good one of the incredibly convenient news broadcast that is very well timed to deliver exposition to any number of important characters. And the guy giving the broadcast uh, is a gentleman who is credited on screen as Hal Fishman, which I thought was, one, an hilarious name, and the fact that so much time was spent giving him this, uh, this exposition I thought was fantastic. But then I did a little research. So Hal Fishman was actually a Los Angeles news anchor, and he died shortly after this film came out. Um, oh. But he... So he was in uh, Black Sunday. He was in Forrest Gump. Uh, he was in Spider-Man 3. He was in less prestigious films like uh, Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles and Maximum Overdrive. Uh, but he... I don't know how you're defining prestige yeah, here. Um, but he is credited by Matt Groening as the inspiration for Kent Brockman. Hmm. Oh! Be darned. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Hal Fishman, wherever you are. Cavorting in heaven with Thomas Hayden Church. Yes. Uh, Our Lord and Savior, THC. I was going to say, Thomas Hayden Church is still alive. Well, his, his corporeal form is still alive. You know, fa- Father, Son, okay. Holy Ghost. So now we're not yes. just distinguishing between Sandman and uh, Flint. No, Be- Bester's case uh, was but... wholly convincing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Holy! Look, oh. we can call we can call our place of worship the Thomas Hayden the Church. Thomas Hayden Memorial Church. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, when we franchise it, they become the Thomas Hayden's Memorial Church, like the Attorney's General. Nice. Yes, exactly. Or the Spider's Man. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, what the Spiders. Wonders Woman? I believe yeah, is what Nick used the other day. Your, your Wonders <laughs> Woman. Yes. Yeah. I, I still don't understand why were there why were there those two Wonder Women there? I don't understand. I re- I'm really taken with the kosher ham, <laughs> right? That's what it looked Man. like. I want to know what the I want to know what the cheese was for. Yeah, the cheese and the fish. Where uh, uh, listeners, we're talking about a, a panel from a Wonder, an old Wonder Woman comic, where uh, uh, two to disguise the fact that Wonder Woman has escaped, I assume, in some kind of Nazi yes. camp to to ooh, uh make a a uh to simulate a wonder woman she has speared three hams with a broom uh to what is it what is the phrase replicate a, the exact the female form figure, yeah yeah that's right it's and I w- after she has the the three hams on the broom she is still holding a a set of sausage links a fish and three quarters of a wheel of cheese yeah. maybe she just yeah. got hungry uh, making that fake wonder woman's hard work <laughs> I will, 
in, in slight defense of the insanity of that, the panel does specify that that is going into a sack. Yes. yes. So it's not like yeah. the Nazis are going to go in and look at that ham and go, yeah. yes, that's yeah, Wonder yeah, Woman. Yes, she is. Oh, she's yeah. being very quiet. <laughs> We're not done yet. Yes. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta introduce the next Lovecraftian horror we're going to unleash on ourselves. We have one more oh my film God, that before is we like get Lovecraft. Bef- <laughs> yeah, one more film before we get to uh, the modern period of Marvel and arguably the the next good film in a long series of uh, of clunkers. Um, the next film we have to watch, guys. Uh, it is. Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. No! <laughs> the horror out of space. Yeah. The yeah. color out of space. Silver, it's the color out of space. Yeah. Isn't Galactus oh a God. like a cloud in this one? I can't remember. Yep, giant, he's a giant, giant cloud. Space cloud. I saw this um, in yeah. theaters, I believe. He's so, played yeah, by Melvar, this, spelled with three L's. This is the L's. one with the ad for the Hemi. Yep, so for those of you who thought that the first Fantastic... Either of the two Fantastic Four films we've watched before, you know, they could have gotten those better. Um, maybe on the third time, your know, third time will be the charm. They'll knock it out of the park this time. I think we've got some bad news. But, you know, fourth one's still to come. Maybe that's the one they'll I mean, figure it out. I'm, I'm hopeful. <laughs> yeah. I liked, uh, what's it called? Chronicle. It was good. Yep. I like the idea of uh, Doctor Doom as a petulant computer hacker. Yeah. I'm fine with that. I mean, I'm fine as with long all the casting decisions that I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm fine with the uh, dude giving himself beaver hair over here. I, I was trying to beaver go for, hair? I was trying to go for emo Spider-Man hair. Yeah, no, no. Oh. I, I know what you were going oh, for, okay. but you got Justin Bieber hair. All right. Oh, I thought I thought you said beaver hair. <laughs>